You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A new chapter this morning in the battle against Ebola. Nickelback are back. The multi-platinum band has just announced a new album and a North American summer. Until you see the flaming butthole, you ain't seen nothing yet. I <laughs> uh, like blue. <laughs> Navy, turquoise, <laughs> all shades of the color blue. <laughs> Fifty shades of blue. <laughs> with, with, yeah. Matt, with Matt Brother Ward. That, that's very apropos. <laughs> You've heard of Fifty Shades of Grey? Well, I'm Fifty Shades of Blue. <laughs> Something good for ya. And welcome to this week's episode of the Something Good For You podcast, where the two of us sift through the bullshit to try to find a little something good to give you each and every single week. I am one of your two co-hosts, Alex Stiff, and sitting across from me, as always, is the one and only Captain Nunn. What's up, everybody? Chris sitting here to steal your intro this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have the... Eh, he gets it too. The one and only Mad Brother Ward, Russ Ward. Happy to have you here, sir. All right. <laughs> That's not the voice you did earlier. <laughs> consistency, sir. Consistency. It's good to be here. There we go. We got the evil Brother Ward. Yes. No, no, no. Now, back for his returning visit over over a year ago, you rolled in. and I, I thought, has it been a year? I thought it's been like two. Yeah, it's definitely been over a year. So, yeah, closer to two. It's yeah. been a while. Yeah. I think we've been doing this podcast for just over two years if not right around it's two it, it, well we lost a year and that's what's messed yeah. me up it's like <laughs> it, it feels like we lost a year of any sort of productivity so it's like i'm completely lost on where i'm supposed to be on certain things yeah i guess i can understand it to a degree yeah time just kind of like froze and you know with now i've been talking with folks about you know getting stuff booked here in the next couple of months like nothing happened <laughs> It's just weird. Yes. My, my my year turned out to be mostly great. It was really great until it wasn't. So <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with COVID. So I, I think I'm in the exact same boat as you on that. It was fantastic until it yeah. wasn't. And it, it just suddenly just went off the rails. So yeah. Like, so but but at that point, for me at least, I went into fuck it mode where I'm just like, is it the tail end of the year? Let's make this year as weird as possible. Let's just milk as much as I can out of it. <laughs> and now I'm kind of in the mode of, for this year, of getting back to, to the productivity. It's like I had the brainwash of like, okay, let's get back on track and let's kind of get some shit done. <laughs> Basically, it's kind of like what Jeff talked about last week where he wanted just to do stuff, stuff for him. And that's kind of where I was last year after uh, listening back to it starting to relate to him on a lot of things where he was like wanting to put together everything he wanted to hear in his head before uh he, i don't know whatever reason he decided to stop doing it but yeah. he seems pretty he's, he seems pretty happy with what he's doing now with stop talking too yeah that kind of opened the door and, to, for an opportunity to get that going and also you as you were saying you it felt like you probably didn't really slow down any scene just really didn't stop either well we never really stop it probably slowed down a little but um only because of the live aspect well yeah and you know well we didn't practice for a little while um but you know uh, we've been writing trying to put together stuff for a new record and uh, you know a new full-length album and so you know that takes a little bit of time there's there's a process involved in that me and barry would get together and make a demo and then you can kind of go back and listen to it 
and kind of go, yeah, that works, or no, it doesn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of, you know, tear it up, start again kind of thing going. And, and actually, uh, how, because I'm sure you guys are using, you know, computers and connected to a soundboard, you know, just cut a quick demo. Is that how y'all are doing it? I think. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say, how, how different is that process for writing as compared to maybe hashing something out on acoustic, say, in the, in the dividers or street trash days, rocking something out at home on a tape and then trying to get a whole band together where now you can actually track it, listen to it, and make changes? I mean, it's way different. Um, but, I mean, I think every situation is unique. So it's different even than when I started, when I joined Anticene. You know, I can remember that one of the first times we sat down together was actually at my house where I was living at the time. Yeah. And it was just me, Barry, and Jeff kind of, you know, in some cases, you just hum an idea to somebody. You know, mm-hmm. I got like a hmm, 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 kind of thing. And you're like, okay. And you start figuring it out like that. Start doing the drummer talk. as a tuka tuka Yeah, a little bit. Because, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and to, to, to you know, I'll out myself here to, it drives Barry nuts that, you know, he, he'll he go, well, start this in B. <laughs> and I'll like, okay. <laughs> Where's B? <laughs> and, and he gets really hot about that. I've gotten way better about it. I've, I've learned. But, you know, I, I'm not a guitar player. I wasn't a guitar player when I joined the band. So, uh, you know, it's like I it's still a little bit of... I mean, that. I could play power chord stuff, and I, you know, which is fine. Joe wasn't a guitar player when he joined the band. Yeah. But he knew the A, B, C, D, E, F, G thing. That's where I've had to come in and go, oh, yeah, because I was like, oh, you know, your finger on the seventh fret <laughs> on the first string, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But, I, you know, I for years and years and years, I was just kind of basically showing ideas to other people. I, and, and I was telling you this before we started. It's like I, I'll come up with an idea and then hand it to someone else and go, here, make a song out of this. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of. I mean, but it's it's not really like that now and now you know we when we get together usually we have an idea kind of pretty well in place Mm -hmm. so it comes together a little more quickly and a little more smoothly um but like i said there's times where you 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 demo it out and you kind of listen to it and you can go okay well you know we might need to change the tempo on something or in some cases you know, just tear it up and start again. You know, yeah. that's just not, it's just not good, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you got more of a, a way to kind of examine it and, and, you know, that's really good, but it can also be bad because sometimes you can kind of over examine it, you know? Yeah. So it, um, I still do that. Just like, you know, I'll, myself on that when I over examine like a motherfucker. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm like really that. bad for it. Personally speaking, you know, I'm, I'm kind of notorious for being my own worst critic. So, um, we got a you know we've got a good healthy start on this right now and um but you know i was listening to the demos just the other night and i was thinking about one in particular where i'm like hmm, we might want to go back and re-examine that a little bit mm-hmm. and i haven't told them that yet i haven't we haven't even gotten together well now I, you've got a week before someone uh, hears this well, well i mean it's not a big deal because they might i might get you know they might disagree and it, it might just stand as is i'm yeah. just saying it's not like it's like i'm trying to kill or anything or no, nothing. No. i'm just i just hearing some ideas i'm going well you know we might want to consider trying this and see what it sounds like and, and that's and I, I always like talking to different musicians especially from you know different generations of creating music 
music, whether it being, you know, back in the day of humming shit out or, you know, even people that are younger than us that have they've always had an iPhone or an iPad they could always demo something out on and kind of see where people's mind frames on that is. And, it, and the one thing I am happy to hear is that most people do agree is that you can overthink it oh, yeah. because I, I've, I've worried about that a little bit kind of seeing the way music has gone where people can just change something and have such creative control at the click of a button and it sound produ- like professionally mastered well you know the give and take on that is sometimes if you if you do like when I was doing you know god it's been how long ago now almost 30 years ago when we recorded the first member of the ward record all of that was done in 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 like three weeks basically we we literally wrote the songs one weekend then went and practiced them the following weekend and then the following week after that we recorded it yeah and half that record was improvised right there in the studio oh wow so it was really only two songs that we went in with and we came out with four <laughs> and the fourth song uh, it was this thing on air called wisdom because I, I it was a complete that. it was a complete well i was trying to come up with like well i had this other kind of riff idea and uh, it was just it was just this you know it was just trying to capture lightning in a bottle and we did with the going crazy song mm-hmm. but we didn't with the wisdom thing i don't think i'm you know that was just but we used it anyway because we had it mm. i liked it because it always felt like a, a tongue-in-cheek wrestling promo well yeah it was kind of that's and, and you know the whole thing that the way that started and i think we talked about this on the last one yeah. was i was just but it's been a long time ago we got new listeners well, <laughs> well the way that the wrestling thing started was when we were just setting the uh, levels for the microphone and i started doing that while we were you know it was like here say something in the microphone i'm like who because i never you know it's like we got to set the levels of the mic oh okay and i started doing you know saturday afternoon you know blah 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 you know sunday afternoon bell time you know blah 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 and then i you know and i started doing i'm gonna tell you something right now And, and 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 jeff came out of the control room he goes hey man you know we ought to think about think about what you want to say and record that and we'll use it for this, and mm. that's how that came into play. The most handsome man in the underground today. Yeah, and that, so then I just started free associating all that stuff. So, um, but going back to just writing and right. and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's there's no I don't have a formula or a process. Mm. Sometimes a lyric will come to me. I'll be driving in my car, and I'll just have a couplet in my head, and I'll, and I'll I'll either try to scramble to write it down, or you know the cool thing now is you got these little the cell phones that can record mm-hmm. on. Yeah, that's like that's like crazy technology for an old man like me. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I can just press a button I can and just press a hums? Yeah, and I do that. I'll hum into it and all that stupid stuff and then i'll go home and start trying to figure it out mm-hmm. you know and then like you know <laughs> i've actually i've gone the step further what you're talking about like give something to someone i've literally hummed something out couldn't figure it out send it to mikey my lead guy and was like figure this out Fig- for me yeah, well, that's what I'm talking about. There's, there's times where i do that you know but uh i don't know it, it, it's just there's no there's uh, someone actually emailed me or private messaged me on facebook asking kind of the same questions like yeah. how do you write a song and i'm like God, I don't know how to answer that. It's a great <laughs> question, but I don't know. The, you know, it's like it's just. Uh, and well, actually, to kind of talk on that a little bit, um, Cap and I, we've been uh, kind of getting ready for our next release, so we've been kind of over analyzing and thinking every little thing on that. And um, I won't mention the song, but we we're discussing one of them, and he was like, "Well, this is just an odd one because this riff just doesn't feel like a chorus." And I'm like, 
okay, well then what is a chorus riff to you? You know, and, and that sort of thing, and kind of breaking that part down. So I, maybe that's even kind of what they're talking about is how do you write a song? Do you, when writing, do you denote specifically when writing, okay, this feels like a verse riff, this feels like a pre-chorus, oh, this would be the chorus, maybe an intro? Sometimes, yeah, I think so. I think sometimes, you know, something feels like it's got more of a, like you said, a feeling to it. It, it, it feels more like, this should be more like the chorus. This should go here. Yeah. And, I, you know, I have the, okay, I take that back in a certain degree. I do kind of have a little bit of a formula. It's like, I always think choruses should go kind of up. You know, okay. Like a, you're, you're going up, you're mm-hmm. building up to it, and it's like you know. So you have this sort of you know, crescendo, almost. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, here you go, and then you know. So you got the endless kind of climax thing going on. Yeah. Um, and you know when you've got something solid like that, you can make a when you can make a good course out of something. I think mm-hmm. usually. Um, but um, you know this like a song we were working on a couple of weeks ago, and I just had kind of a rough riff idea. And Jeff started batting out his ideas. He's got a really cool ear for arranging and to think of things that I would not have think of. Well, because he likes a lot of that 60s and 70s R&B, disco, soul kind of well, stuff that, that maybe has a little bit more of a bouncier beat to it. Well, or the, just the, the complexity of the arrangement. And yeah. that's probably bleeding into his way of thinking now. I don't know. And that's kind of primarily where he's kind of at play now is just arranging ideas that will come, you know, out. Or, this one that we've been working on right now has primarily been all my, my riffs and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm, I've learned a long time ago not to get real, like, um, I don't know what the word is, you know, precious about it. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, let's, you know, it's gotta be free reign for everyone to put their, their opinion on and start arranging it. And I think that only comes from having a good relationship with the rest of your band and having the comfort to be able to go, okay, well, if this isn't good, if you tell me, I know you're not being a dick. You just want it to serve the oh, song. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I Whereas mean, you sometimes you can do that with band certain band members you know are just kind of shooting it down because it's not what they wanted to oh, do. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. I, I guess I've encountered that to a degree. I th- but you know, in the past when it was just my my thing and it was my stuff, you know, I could I could always heavily veto something you've also seemed to be pretty lucky with all your band members because i even the ones in the past that i've kind of met along the way they've all seemed to be pretty much in that same mindset of we just want to create good music yeah. you know whether it be joe andy you know all these people that have gone on to also make great music before well, and after I don't, you know yeah that's true but I, that's not to say i haven't pissed them off oh know? i'm sure i'm sure i've pissed cap off and i've pissed mikey <laughs> off a good bit well, too I, with my I decisions that's just off. moments that's just relationships <laughs> i pissed off joe dead one time so bad that he kicked his cabinet Oh no! And he kicked it so hard he broke his toe. Oh shit! I haven't gotten that mad yet. You haven't made me that mad yet. I made, I've made drummers that mad. <laughs> There's a reason we're all number five. Yeah, we uh, we get a new drummer every year. Yeah. A new album cycle comes with a different drummer. But you know, if you have a clear vision of what you want and you know where you're going and you know what you need to do to get there then, you know, is that wrong? No, and at this point, I've kind of also leaned on Mikey and Cap and kind of like looked at them going, am I wrong? Am I being a dick? And they're just kind of like, nah, nah, dude. I'm like, cool, sweet. By the way, bye, 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 bye. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, 
I think all of this can kind of actually wrap around to something we were discussing earlier, which was, you know, kind of talking about, you know, looking at our music that we're writing versus, you know, the rawness versus maybe overproducing it in your head. One of the things I've been kind of slowly getting back into, it was one of the first things that really got me into the love of music is finding old bootlegs. Because I've been enjoying finding the warts and the rawness in live recordings, especially from legacy bands. And one of them that brought me to the attention of it was Cap's uh, recent recommendation of the new Cheap Trick live record that came out. It's uh, it came out. It's Spotify says twenty twenty, but it, I wouldn't. It's hit, like a newly released yeah. old like bootleg. A lot of seventy. It was a seventies professionally done recording. Now uh, with uh, the folks that have enhanced it, they uh, recorded it at the Whiskey in nineteen seventy seven, and it's like uh, them playing just the first two albums all the way through, and uh, all the drum hits are sampled. But you hear Robin Zander just you know his voice breaking at the end of he's a whore and things like that too. And you hear like missed cues and choruses and things like that. You know, Rick Nielsen's hitting bad notes because he's playing sloppy, you know, getting into his, you know, showman bits and things like that. And that's just a great live album to me. Even if the drum hits are sampled like that. They sampled the drum. Well, like every hit is, uh, they take a couple of, uh, I guess hits off of the performance and they paste them into like each snare hit, each kick hit, each, uh, Tom hit and makes it sound bigger. Yeah, so so like um you remember that you wanted the best you got the best kiss mm-hmm. thing that came out the way they would kind of do Peter's drums where it's like you could tell it was the 70s version of him playing but they kind of resampled yeah, the snare and the kick yeah, and it sounded like they kind of did that but it still doesn't take away from the uh just makes it sound bigger ex- almost exactly. it doesn't sound like 2020 drums yeah i don't know i mean i don't know i don't know what the you know the chemistry or whatever they put into doing live recordings i know that most professional live recordings aren't really necessarily live per se yeah they go back and redo a lot of it yeah you know the kiss alive is notoriously a lot of that was re-recorded all those 70s live albums uh yeah the eagles live record i think was almost like a hundred percent all redone in the studio i had that one too yeah <laughs> you know so i but i don't know you know who did what but then again you have a record like uh Lou Reed's Take No Prisoners Live, which I think was just used. I mean, if you listen to it, it sounds like they were using, I mean, really good high-end uh, microphones, but they're just like ambient microphones. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so, you, you know, you can hear, I mean, it's really well recorded, but you can tell it's It's definitely it's sloppy live. live. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, for the table, do you guys prefer an album like the Lou Reed record or a record like Kiss Alive? Well, I mean, it just serves its own purpose. I like, like, we'll just compare Kiss Alive to Kiss Alive 2. I think Alive 2 sounds more doctored to my ear than Kiss Alive does. Now, to what degree, which one got doctored more, I don't know. But it was just, I think, you know, there's an immediacy or whatever there. There's a feeling in Kiss Alive that sounds like you're actually in the room, that it's you know, you're exactly. part of that experience. Whereas Kiss Alive Two sounds like almost like you're in the hallway or something. I don't think it has that same right up front in your face kind of sound to it. Because a lot of the Kiss Alive recordings were like from you know shows, right? But then they doctored up the guitar parts and vocals yeah. and things like that, right? Yeah. Well, I think Alive yeah, Two well, actually had like straight studio tracks. Yeah, like they, they never were, they never played like Tomorrow and Tonight. Yeah, they never played Tomorrow and Tonight live. And, and what's the other one they added to Hard that? Hard Luck Woman. Hard Luck Woman. Yeah. Those are the two songs that they recorded. And that was at a sound. They recorded all those in like sound checks and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right? the weird thing. If you have the Kiss box set that came out like in ninety eight, ninety nine. 
on one of the discs, there's a sound check for I Want You. Mm-hmm. If you listen to that, it's eerily close to the Alive 2 version. Like, they maybe retracted a guitar, maybe Paul punched in a vocal or two, but if you listen to those drums, it's exactly almost note same. for note. Yeah. <laughs> well, it may be. I mean, you know, and the only thing that was actually live on Kiss Alive is the drums. People want to shit all over Peter Chris as a drummer. Uh, sorry i mean that's some that's some shit hot drumming mm-hmm. i mean it really is especially compared to the studio tracks yeah well and we've also kind of gone down this on our patreon a little bit i think it's because and we've discussed a couple other drummers that fall into this category i think there was an era of jazz drummers that went rock and that gave it a certain sound and tone that maybe a lot of drummers don't have today. Well, I think it's less... You can lift that if you need to. No, I'm good. I think it's less that um, jazz drummers went rock as rock drummers just started lifting from the jazz cats. Yeah. And I think, you know, but you can extend that logic on almost any level. And that's part of what I think makes rock and roll so great is that it's just, it's such a, it's, it's such a easy form to put your own spin into it even and, if you're a jazz drummer trying to play that kind of stuff yeah, it kind of like makes it bigger you know i mean you know i'm not a drummer so i don't know enough about like counts as far as outside of four four and then they start talking about like <laughs> that's the only one that matters four <laughs> four five or six eight or whatever i don't know anything about that stuff but uh you know, but just having that kind of a swing, you know, Peter Chris had a swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that, you know, a guy like Eric Carr, who was a great drummer, but he didn't have, he didn't swing. No, the guy they got now doesn't swing. That guy's, you know, he's, he has no real definitive style to me. I think there came a point in arena rock, if you will, where the drummer just kind of, you know, the whole point was just to hit hard and to keep time. Well, I think, you know, and I think that's a negative influence when it comes to guys like John Bonham. You know, John Bonham was great to be John Bonham, but guys trying to copy that sound kind of, I mean, you know, it kind of lost, again, the swing that kind of, you know, a fire. It, it, you know, I, I think of guys that I like growing up, and I think I've had this argument with Jeff Williams. I don't, I don't know if he remembers because, you know, he was talking about he wanted a, a Tommy Ramone type drummer at one point. I'm like, no, you want a Marky Ramone. He started describing what he wanted. I was like, no, you want a Marky Ramone kind of drummer, you know, cause Tommy Ramone did not hit hard. No. And I'm like, a lot of our favorite drummers were not hard hitting guys. They weren't John bottom types. All our favorite drummers were guys like Peter Chris or Neil Smith from the Alice Cooper group, Tommy mm-hmm. Ramone, uh, Keith moon is yep. my favorite drummer. You know, never used that guy hat. was that guy. Yeah, he was playing with a big <laughs> ride symbol where his hi hat should be. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, and and was not a technically quote unquote technically proficient drummer, but he was a great rock and roll drummer. And I'm Absolutely. like, you know, and you're flying by the seat of your pants, and that goes into you know, I I, I apply that to guitar playing as well. You know, I I think, uh, you know for for an eddie van halen to do what eddie van halen did whatever if you dig it and everything okay great but that influence bled down in a way that was negative in the long run Mm -hmm. you know where people stopped playing you know a a feeling and started playing this technical proficient you know yeah it became a math yeah and it, it it. it was like you know and you just you know i think that's damaged music in the long run but 
you know, I'm, I'm pontificating. I'm just kind of <laughs> oh, no. going off, this, off into no, another No, this 100% little, works I've had because... these conversations with Alex a lot, too, about Van Halen, because I dig Van Halen music. <laughs> but, I can't stand Van Halen. But I understand yeah, that I he is responsible for a lot. That style of guitar playing is responsible for a whole era of just awful uh, well, guitar music. I got a friend of mine that is um, a major league Randy Rhodes fan. And, and you know, we've talked about it. I don't know if he's... You know, I, I, I'm sure he understands this, but, uh, I, you know, and I don't even really rightly know how to say it, but I look at someone like Randy Rhodes and I'm like, for all the technical stuff that Randy Rhodes could do, he still had a real strong feel to his playing. He, exactly. You know, I'm like, that's what makes him interesting to me because he was kind of that cross hybrid of the technical proficiency plus just sort of a raw feeling it was real musical too and yeah and uh, you know i don't and i never got a feeling off of eddie van halen he just never had a feel to me it was always look what i can do kind of a thing i think because, that was the, uh, no, sorry go ahead i was just gonna say that i think that was just kind of the vibe of the whole band for like the first two records it was everything was dialed up to 10 but then uh every other band tried to copy that and turn everything up into 10 to 10 but in all the wrong directions yeah i can see that no and and i think that's also what kind of makes maybe some of those classic bootlegs from like the 60s 70s 80s more enjoyable because you know kind of what you're saying russ it eventually turned into loud and proficient instead of energy and feeling well, and sometimes with those older shows it was like okay well the illinois show sucked but hey if you check out when they went down to you know tennessee this show they were on fire the, the drummer must have had the right combination of speed and uppers and downers yeah. <laughs> the guitarist was just the right amount of drunk but then you get into grateful dead territory as far as being that analytical with it well yeah and i don't know i it, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I'm. You got. I think part of what you're talking about is I think what birthed punk rock to a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not. It's not really fair to say it like that, but um, you know, it's weird because we're part of a generation like, and I'm only seeing this. You know, there was a part. Uh, there was a time when I first got into the punk rock thing where there was like a rejection for all this '70s rock and roll, like it was the yeah. bloated excess blah 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 and then it kind of came back around in the late 90s and you had the rise of these bands like the super suckers and 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 the uh, you know the nashville pussy and uh, the helicopters and the you know Zingarilla, to, to a certain extent Z- uh, yeah turbo negro uh, you know just these bands that start coming up and they were kind of more openly embracing that kind of 70s thing but it was more through the the channels of like just 70s hard rock kind of ted nugent yes that kind of stuff less than it was the yes and air you know and pink floyd or whatever right um i think that was like that in the early 90s too even with bands like the melvins and uh, mud honey and things like that yeah well that's you know that's so there was always but i guess my point i'm making is you go back to that that era of the 70s and stuff there was always an energy and vibe even to some of these bands that i think people tend to overlook or have forgotten um what great live record uh, ted nugent's double live gonzo mm-hmm. to me which is the peak i don't think he ever did anything after that that was interesting on any level it's and a great live album, though. It's a fucking great live record. I mean, Nugent's you know, been hard for me to get into, honestly. And, uh, it's 
because most of what he does is not good. Yeah. <laughs> he has some god awful Even songs. his studio records, it's, well, there's one of those classic cases where his studio records, and I think this is kind of true for Kiss to a degree, too, unless you're a big fan, you know. You know, I wouldn't recommend those first three Kiss records to anyone. I'd go skip that and go to Kiss Alive because yeah. that has the fire and the feel of way you want to you want to hear those songs. And it's the same with the Ted Nugent thing. It's like all the stuff on a solo or on those you know post Amboy Dukes, you know Ted solo quote unquote stuff. Yeah, uh, those the the Double Live Gonzo just captures that a lot better, and you know it's a lot more exciting and a lot more. You know, and I don't and know how much that's doctored. I, who knows? And it's mm-hmm. guitar porn for days too. People forget how great of a guitar yeah, player he's a Ted great Nugent guitar is. Player, and it's not like, and it, it's it's, you know, and it's not like the Eddie Van Halen kind of guitar play, and it still has that kind of raw, like, you know. Yeah, it's still one of those. He's he's cha- you know chomping at the bit, kind of playing almost a little beyond where he can go, you know. And that's where it gets kind of exciting for me. It's kind of like you know. It's like as a guitar player watching going like, God damn it, you're so fucking good. Why'd you have to be an asshole? <laughs> but and, there's a cool thing on that Ted record. I was showing this kid that I work with not long ago. I'm like, here's something that even my generation probably kind of missed. It was like, there's a part at the beginning of, I think it's Stormtrooping, where he's doing this little thing at the very front of it. And then for a nanosecond, you can hear these firecrackers go off. Yeah. That's on the Aerosmith live record, too. Yeah, you don't have that anywhere. Like, that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, kind of gives that kind of that vibe to a good live record. Because that was the whole thing. Everybody's just firing off uh, firecrackers just if it's an outdoor thing. People, you know, and the bands hated it because they throw the firecrackers at the stage. Yeah. (laughs) And then, and of course... And actually kind of pull it back to any scene a little bit. You guys are kind of pushing against it with the Live From Quarantine uh, record coming out. But in general, you really don't see a lot of live records from bands anymore. What do you think caused the death of the live record? Because it used to be exactly what you said. You know, oh, if you if you want to check out Kiss, don't check out the first couple records. Check out this live record. And then even just then with Ted Nugent, oh, check out the live record. You don't really say that with bands anymore. And I wonder what caused that. I don't know. I think there might have been, well, you know, bootlegs. I think is probably a big reason why is there's there's you know with the rise of the internet and stuff, you just you find more and more and you know groups that would go around major bands or whatever would go around and you could there for a while there was a thing where you could buy the board recording of that oh, very night yeah. show. The mm-hmm. Alice when I saw Alice Cooper, he was offering that. Yeah. So I mean, it just became it just became. Um, you know, just it was too easily accessible. I don't think there was something quite so special about it anymore. Even yeah. then, that was kind of like a '70s thing, really. Like there, I can't think of like a famous '80s live record other than maybe the Iron Maiden "Live After Death." Yeah, yeah, it's true. Maybe uh, Metallica "Binge and Purge," even though that the was Randy Black Rhodes album. tribute record yeah, was kind of that a big one deal too. when that came out. Um, but all that stuff was already kind of readily available in bootleg circles. Yeah. And, you know, that's, and I think that was probably what gave the rise to the live album in the seventies was to counter that the bootleg thing became a, there was a hot market for that in the early seventies. Was that when it started? I always kind of pictured that starting maybe in the mid eighties when cassette tastes were a lot no, cheaper no, to no. kind of duplicate. They were, no, it was, it was records. I've got, I've got a, a small handful of some bootlegs that I've, I don't know where I've scored them. They just were, part of some you know be buying a 
bunch of records and they would be in there kind right of thing. there's a stand-up comedian i listen to his name's uh dean del rey and uh half of his show is just basically conversations like this and he talks about how he's got like old 70s bootleg tapes of led zeppelin shows and things like that that he'll get on rabbit holes with with folks that's that's the, you know there were labels that specialized in it but they weren't like labels like where you would see their you know they had their own label on the record it would mm-hmm. just be a blank label on the record and they would it would be a blank cover usually and they would just stamp the title in there and then you know some of the more high-end quote-unquote would have their own stamp and, you oh. know and I, I you know there was um, uh, i can't remember the names of some of these i think one was called corn tone or something like that with a k okay and then there was um I can't remember. There's one I'm seeing. I can see the stamp, but I can't remember the name of it. It seemed like it had something to do with a pig, blind pig or something. And then there was um, um, the seal of quality or something like that. Right. They oh, just I had remember their own little things that. like this. Okay. So I've got, you know, and like, you know, early on, uh, early, you know, the probably the big first big one was uh, the Stones. There was a Stones bootleg called uh, Liver Than You'll Ever Be. Yeah. <laughs> And um, and I think that's what prompted them to do their first live album or their first serious get, live album. Get your guys out was a it was a response to try to you know here's an official live record with you know decent sound rather than you know a lot of the bootleg sounds where guys carrying recorders into a, an arena. Well, then it became See, how, uh, well, I was going to say then it became like how the live album became the uh, compilation album for uh, bands. You know, in between studio mm-hmm. albums. Well, in I between. think that's part of what killed live albums too. I was going to say you know, initially the idea was we're going to we're going to you know uh, combat the bootleg market with our own live material. It's going to be, and we're going to have better quality packaging because the bootlegs are usually in a plain white cover yeah sometimes they would have a photocopied sleeve that we, they would paste on the front Ew. <laughs> you know because you know, like i've got some i got some pete floyd bootlegs and some neil young bootlegs that i acquired somewhere along the way i think i got some genesis ones which i've never i've never I well it'd be it would be peter gabriel genesis too i mean these are old yeah uh Actually, i might i can't remember if i have a who bootleg or not but you know um, Genesis is one that my best friend growing up would like try to sell me on all the time. And I still, you know, every now and then try to dip my toe yeah, back into never, it, but it's just not me. for me. Yeah, me either. If these are records that, you know, I, I generally don't buy bootlegs and I certainly wouldn't have bought these on purpose. They're just, I think I bought them in, in kind of like a, a, a lot of records. You know what I mean? Any Grateful Deads? No, no. So, you know. And surprisingly, I figured. I was going to say the bootleg collector. You don't have the. <laughs> I'm not a bootleg collector. I'm just saying I've acquired them. I yeah, don't really care enough. for for bootlegs. I'd say so. you're just more of a record collector because you because at least when any time I saw you had a very very decent collection at least of seven inches. Well, yeah, I don't. You know, my seven inch collection has kind of gotten gotten larger now, but. Uh, it was it probably about as large as it once was. I've never had a lot of seven inches, and I, I, most of the ones that I had that would be like collector nerd stuff, I got rid of back when I got divorced, like twenty years ago. Yeah, you know, twenty one years ago. Yeah, I just remember uh, when you and Andy were living together. You had like maybe four or five of those crates, almost it seemed like of records. That's kind of yeah, where I've, I've always got. Kinda, I've still got a bunch of records. Yeah. I have more than that now. I need to get rid of them. I, I, you know, I don't listen to them as much as I used to. I, I'm ashamed to say I, I'll go through phases where I'll pull out records and be listening to them a lot, 
until finally they just they, you know I'll pull them out of the the, the I pull them off the shelf play them and then i'll put them like i'll lean them on the uh, against the record shelf on the yeah. floor until the next thing you know i got this mess of like records on the floor and i have to clean it all up and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, I, and i'm real particular because i got them all alphabetized and all that stuff i was yeah. gonna say is it alphabetized and then by release year yeah of yeah, course yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say i'm the same way so i did to combat that only pull out one at a time yeah. that way it can immediately go right back where it needs to go well i don't do that and then I, next thing you know i got this pile of records i put them all away and then i won't pull them out again for a while you know because it's just like it becomes you know and and but part of that's the fun of it though it's like you know the thing that you get off of a vinyl record the whole vibe of it pulling it out you know it's kind of have this kind of ritualistic kind of thing yeah you, pull you look up, at the gatefold you, you know and... you put the record on and put the needle on and the whole thing it's a it's a process and then you're yeah. looking at the record the cover's so much larger than a cd cover you know and you're just the artwork is usually more impressive well now i'm invested because like we you used to do your research by looking at all the uh you know credits on the records and things like that whether it was a cd or a piece of vinyl or anything like that and now we're finding out who's on our uh you know plays on some of like our favorite new records that rock records that are coming out whether it be like you know scandinavian rock bands like imperial state electric or robert person's humbucker and that's yeah, kind of been the fun of getting back into it because we're, we're actually finally getting a taste because i've always been a little bit jealous of the concept of the 70s and 80s just flipping through the record collection and actually having a better chance than you do today of actually finding something of quality you know especially if you were kind of especially during certain time periods and again what you're saying part of the fun of that was also reading the gatefold looking at the artwork and everything else whereas I got like the tiniest taste of it, and then immediately there was Rhapsody and Napster and LimeWire and oh, now yeah, Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. I didn't really get that. With some of the new bands we found, exact one of them I can immediately pull to mind: Robert Person's Humbucker, a Scandinavian band that doesn't really release their album credits. So it's like you look online, you can't find anything. You just find the titles of the songs. They don't even have lyrics posted. Just a link to buy it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so uh, over Christmas, uh, Eric wound up purchasing me uh, two of the records on vinyl. And Cap and I sat there for probably a good 15 minutes just like scouring over the liner notes right, and just right. like reading yeah. everything. And it's like it was so enjoyable to finally get a moment like that. Well, we would do that when we were kids to a degree. Uh, you know, uh, being in the you know my age i probably was kind of an, you know not normal <laughs> <laughs> well you know we we lived in kind of a what it, it probably wouldn't seem so remote now but at the time it felt like it was fairly remote area um i've written about this before in my blog like where me and your stepdad mm -hmm. lived we were kind of almost in a it might as well have been a complete different world we lived in this neighborhood where there was kind of like on the side of a mountain and it kind of just this where we lived it was where it kind of peaked at this road that kind of curved over the not at the top but it was you know high, at the highest point of the neighborhood so on one side it was one kind of it was all one neighborhood but on one side you had this one kind of neighbor it was almost like it was a complete different neighborhood on one side and then the other side it was like another complete different neighborhood and then there was just me and eric at the top so we kind of <laughs> we were kind of you know, we weren't really linked to what all the other kids had going on. So, you know, we kind of developed our own thing, right? which, you know, was difficult at the time, but it was also kind of cool. I think it's part of the reason why I think me and him are both so different now. But, um, yeah, looking at those, those record covers, you'd, you'd start, you know, as you got a little older, you'd start looking at, like, production credits and stuff, and you'd be like, oh, 
Eddie Kramer. Mm-hmm. And then you start looking and go, oh, Eddie Kramer produced this as well. Or yeah. Eddie, he had you know, and you start Jimmy seeing Hendrix that stuff. And Kiss? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's pretty bizarre, the stuff that Eddie, you think Eddie Kramer was working with Kiss. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. This stuff like that, you start, you know, connecting the dots and you start seeing how how things kind of then you're just you know, form like this sort of you know, web yeah. yeah and and that's that's always been kind of interesting to look yeah. at and, and the same thing happened on that because all of a sudden we start reading like on the robert person record like he plays like he almost he's kind of like the pr- rock prince of you know sweden right now it's like he recorded like all the instruments on there except for like say on track two guest bass is you know uh nick anderson from the helicopters and it's oh, like yeah. oh fuck you know it's shit like that well, it's like okay oh and that backup singer oh that's the same guy that's in imperial state electric that's why that sounds like that and that's well, fun that's for you know and again being my age which you know being the late 70s and being you know the late 70s if you were i was eight years old let's say in 79 so kiss was obviously the easiest that was the bottom shelf that was the easiest most accessible thing for an eight-year-old to get into yeah uh but then you get like the Gene Simmons solo record when they did the four solo records simultaneously, you know, you flip it over and he's got all the special guests on it. And there's Bob Seger. And you start realizing, oh, Bob Seger. Oh, that's that Night Move song. Mm-hmm. So that was you your know? gateway into Bob Seger. Kind of, yeah. Or any of it, you know. Uh, he did a lot of work that was like that. Like my first favorite band was the Eagles and he has a songwriting credit on Heartache Tonight. Well, yeah, you could go and listen to Bob Seger, go listen to Fire Lake and you can hear the Eagles all over that. Mm-hmm. You know, and but I always say the best Eagles records are Bob Seger records. <laughs> <laughs> was it Rambling Gambling Man with Glenn Fry? Glenn Fry was real young on that. But even later on, you know, the stuff like, uh, you know, Eddie kind of turned, Eddie Ford from the self made Monsters turned me on to uh, this song called Till It Shines. It was on. Um, I'm trying to remember the album. I get him. It's not in a, in a Stranger in Town. I'm almost positive it's on Stranger in Town, and that's that's Glenn, uh, Glenn Fry. I think playing that. It almost sounds like a Thin Lizzy song. Really? Yeah, and it's really fucking good. I'll have to check that out. I've got it, the uh, speaking of live albums from earlier. That's one of the better ones from the '70s. Is that Bob Seger uh, Live Bullet? Yeah, he had two live records out. He had the Live Bullet, and he had Nine Tonight. I think live bullet was the first one i think I so right. had- and see the thing of weird it's weird about bob seger is that he had you know bob Seeger. okay so like bob seger and and uh he was kind of like the perennial opening act for everybody all through the early 70s mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't imagine anyone of a certain generation having not seen Bob Seger. I never did. I saw him on his quote-unquote farewell tour. I assume yeah, he that did. it is. Yeah, he did that. Like, he's done that, what, 10, 15 times well, no, now at he this point? started it, and then he hurt his back, and he had to stop for a while. So. Oh, damn. Yeah, I'm like, I, I don't remember know. that. But Bob Seger has, like, six records that he's never allowed to be released on CD. He's just let them go out of print, and what he era? doesn't. From the early 70s, late 60s? Yeah, or? he's got... Well, you know, you can find, like, he, Rambling Gambling Man, was a, he's got... But he's got a record called Noah, a record called Brand New Morning. He's got an album called um, Mongrel, which is where I stole the name from mm-hmm. the Mongrels band. Um, i trying to remember them all. Uh, Seven, which has one of the best, most kick-ass rock and roll songs ever called Get Out of Denver. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, some of those songs ended up on that first live record uh, back in 72. And that was a record that I just, I've been looking for ever. I found Mongrel by luck. Um, 
there's two versions of it. There's one that's got a gatefold cover and one that's just a single cover. I found the gatefold cover and I got it for like 10 bucks. And oh, wow. You know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not a and it just super has to do rare with like copyright record. issues or, I, you know, I think it seemed like I read somewhere he has heat with somebody that had, yeah, that shares the copyright on that or something. Yeah. Hmm. Cause I've been trying to figure that out. Cause uh, I brought this up to you, um, a couple years ago, but it's like, I fell down that, uh, the sweet rabbit hole oh, yeah. and, um, I was trying to find an online copy of uh, sweet Fanny Adams because I had rebel rouser on it mm. and desolation Boulevard, which was basically the U.S. version of Sweet Fanny Adams with a couple tracks replaced. That was one of the tracks that was swapped out. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, I think that's another one of those weird copyright issues where it's like you can't find it online, but I, I was able to score actually a repress. Some, maybe a bootleg company, I don't know, did a repress of it and it had it on there, so I was able to nab it. It's super, yeah, that's one thing about the internet. You can find this stuff if you're, you know... If you're the, you're gonna look. If you're gonna be a nerd enough, about it, yeah. like me, <laughs> like us, <laughs> the, the intrepid fan. But going back to like, and this is the thing about live albums, and I think maybe to a certain degree, the bootleg thing was uh, like with the Bob Seger, mm-hmm. you know, the and for Cheap Trick too, they both had huge hits off their live albums to the point that where you don't know the studio version. Yeah, like Beautiful Loser, I couldn't, I can't picture the studio version of that off the top of my head at all. Well. I was, was going to refer to "Turn the Page," which is kind of a signature song for him. And I and I'll, every once in a while, I, you know, I had the. I wanted to go deep cuts. <laughs> I like to play. Well, well, my point is, is how when have you ever heard the studio version of "Turn the Page"? Never, never, because it's on back in '72, which is not available on CD, which no one can even find. It's a very hard record to find. Wow. And it's just, you know, you've never heard it. And, and see what happens if I even Google that. You could probably find it now. I know you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, probably, that's probably like the but, only place you probably could find but it now. For, yeah. I'm just saying for a long time, no one, you know, and, and who's going to do that? You know, your average, you know, blue collar type that listens to classic rock radio isn't mm-hmm. going to take the time or the have person the that's interest. barely under now understanding Spotify. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, I would say this, the people that that hear music but they don't listen to it yeah I, I, like, wait, Cap and I have had that same exact conversation where you are consuming music you're not actually ingesting it you, there's a difference between consuming I it and ingesting it I have this argument it. with a guy at work all the time and I'm like you're not a music fan and he's like oh like all kinds of music I'm like yeah but you don't listen to it mm-hmm. you just hear it it's just it's just background noise for you yeah you know I'm like you know and it, but that's that goes in the, you know that's not should I criticize that person because I mean isn't that kind of to a degree what popular music supposed to kind of be and with art in general you know, but for people like us we're the weirdos yeah we're, exactly you know, we look at them going, you're a weirdo you don't <laughs> like music and it's like no he's not the weirdo I'm the weirdo <laughs> it's like what do you mean if you listen to this riff here does it not remind you of this other listen song listen to this this is this okay you know that this this version of Train Kept a Rolling by Aerosmith you know that's not Joe Perry and Brad Whitford right <laughs> <laughs> you know that, right? I mean, they're not credited, but that's Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner. <laughs> and see, and that's one of the things see, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's, but you know, and that's actually one of the reasons I'm like so appreciative. I found like my friendship with Cap is like on our other podcast on Patreon. Even before we hit record, we'll talk about you know, hey, what record are we putting on? And like for instance, he's like, oh, we're doing uh, Iggy and the Stooges, or actually, we're doing the Stooges' uh, Raw Power, yeah. specifically this mix. Yes, <laughs> we do the, the 2011 Iggy mix, not the uh, David Bowie '73 uh-huh. or '72 like, mix. And then it's like before we even hit record, we're already discussing <laughs> the differences between no, see, the that, mix and that's everything. A whole else. 
thing when you got the remix records or you know and all that stuff. But well, see, I remember you showing me that stuff. Uh, what, cause it was over at the place where um, because you're not there anymore. It's not uh, telling folks where you live. Uh, down where you used to be near the Bojangles Coliseum. Uh, you had gotten some Iggy repress that had I Won't Be Your Dog on it. And I think, and you were just trying to show, and you're like, now this one has like the bells that are louder on it. Now this one actually had the bells swapped out and this, that, and the other. Yeah, I don't remember that, but I, I mean, there was a. That would have been the first album then. Yeah, they had the. There was a. Well, there's a. There's two mixes of that too. They had allegedly. I mean, the, the guy that produced it was. Um, it was John Cale, right? John Cale from the Velvet Underground. So I guess there's a John Cale mix yeah. that apparently I guess the record company didn't like. So they then before it actually got released, they did it again, which isn't an unusual thing. I, yeah. I think it happens on occasion. Especially, but, especially with a band like that where they didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue how to sell them. Yeah, well, yeah. But that was like proto-punk rock conversations <laughs> yeah. going on from there, too. But... um. I've then lost my point now. I've I'm sorry. Of, no, okay. it's all right. I just, uh, I was just thinking that you know that goes into a whole nother kind of rabbit hole when you get into these remixes and stuff. Well, I think I mean hell, let's get into that rabbit hole because even because kind of circle it back to the one band we always talk about every single time on this show, Kiss. Uh, they even did Destroyer Resurrected. Which was kind of like that remix where they cleaned up Peter's drums, separated out guitars more, and kind of did shit well, like that. You know, the interesting thing, if you know, Kiss Nerd, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> you should just do a Kiss podcast. <laughs> I mean, this is essentially what this is. This is essentially what it is. Well, the thing about, the, the thing about that, that is, like, Bob Ezrin recorded with the effects on the track yeah so there wasn't a whole lot they could do to remix stuff like that and they they you know they didn't touch it forever because it was only in the last you know since they've done it that they've had the technology to kind of be able to even play with it yeah in any way that was you know listenable <laughs> they were noticeable and it's not crazy noticeable and like you know they put the uh what they're calling the original a solo on. Yeah. And I don't think that's, I don't think that was ever intended to be the solo. I think it that sounds sounded more like, him like demoing. yeah, it sounds like him doing like a scratch take to get a, you know, a feel of the yeah, song. Like, oh, the, the solo is going to go here. And I kind of maybe wanted to orchestrate it in this way. But yeah. there are people that are buying that going, that's Ace solo. It sucks. And I'm like, yeah, I think Ace wouldn't have let that. Yeah, I don't think anybody would dirty let that. on yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. And who knows what the story is on something like that. That, but is that just at least it's work? not Tommy re-recording something and yeah. then passing it, passing it off his face? For, for, <laughs> so well, they didn't have anything to do with that. No. I was, that was going to be my next question: those those uh, those remastered packages, just you know, a release for the record company to put out, just so they can keep the rights to the songs. Yeah, and all I that. don't know the I don't know the ins and outs of that. They sold the the catalog, so I don't know who has the rights to do whatever with that. I'm pretty sure that might be it's neither here nor there, but I'm pretty sure it's universal. I was going to say, oh, because yeah. like, um, you know, then they went back and re-recorded those songs. So oh, they, yeah, you know, that was that all Sonic when, when groups thing. do that, mm-hmm. they go back and re-record old stuff. Yeah. That's because they've sold the rights to the original and they still want to somehow make some sort of money off of it. And it's mm-hmm. not just Kiss. It's bands like Scorpions yeah. and Twisted Sister and Judas Alice Priest. Cooper even. Alice Cooper. Yeah. Aerosmith. Oh, you, you know, you find that, you found that, even before that, you know, I think that probably was born out of like country music because you find like a lot of these country comps and they're just re-recordings of the old songs and it's yeah. like, 
it's them, but it's like not, you know, it's like, that's not what I wanted. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't want, I didn't want to hear, you know, mama tried recorded in 1994, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with 94 technology. It's just not the same. You know, I want, I want the old school, you know, with all the reverby shit that country music yeah. was doing in the nineties. <laughs> That's so, another thing that was going on too. Where in the late '80s and early '90s, uh, a lot of classic records were getting remixed with you know uh, '80s reverby drums and things like that. I remember having a ZZ Top compilation that had like you know big echoey drum tracks on that. Tush and Lagrange and all the '70s yeah. ZZ Top tracks. They, you know, I don't think you can even get um, their first two albums that doesn't have you know. That, I don't think you can even find the original mix of those. I don't think that when they put them on CD, I don't think. I think it's nothing but a remix. I believe it. You know, and that's what makes those vinyl copies more desirable because mm-hmm. they're the original mix. They don't have that shitty, you know, commercialized whatever. Now, do you think the Ramones have done it right? Or the Ramones camp with the first uh, four records they've re-released with the remasters and stuff? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I haven't given those a real... I listened to that first one where they did the mono mix. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I mean it's cool it's different the thing of it is and this goes back to like what you're saying about the the iggy versus bowie mix of raw power it's like when you've when you're used to you know you've grown up with the one thing mm-hmm. that's what you know that's what you love yeah the hard yeah. split stereo it, the, the other thing is is cool it's interesting to hear it's different you know but it's not yours it doesn't necessarily yeah it doesn't necessarily feel like it's you know that's it's the different thing but it's, it doesn't make it bad or anything in, in some cases it might be better i think you know, I know people that prefer that Iggy mix, which I get it. I, you know, I like it too. But you know, um, the same with the Ramones thing. It's like I'm used to hearing it a particular way, right? But you know, I don't know. Don't even notice it anymore. And that's interesting to kind of look at look at it that way because, of course, I've not had as many years, you know, to fall in love with that first record as you have. But you know, I've had it in my peripheral for I would say at least you know the better part of my life, at least twenty five years. Sure. And for some reason, it's like when I heard that mono mix, it felt like the album clicked in a different way. Does that make any sense? Where it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, I hear and feel the intensity that they were going for more now with it, the remix. It made more sense that they should have mixed it that way to begin with. Yeah. But, but they, of course, but they of course, didn't. It was what it was. And, it, you know, I just, um, I don't know. It's not your mix. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah and, well, and that's totally valid. And you know how many people learn how to play with that because you could you could adjust the uh, balance on yes. your speaker. So mm-hmm. you get just drums and, and bass on one side and you could learn to play the guitar part. <laughs> exactly. Or vice versa. You know, your drums and guitar on one side, you could just learn how to play the bass. You know, there's a there's sort of a and kind then of a the romance 80s, to that. And then the eighties when you got your walkman, if you pulled the headphone out just right, sometimes you could isolate an instrument. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> trying to think of like live rec or any records that have uh, been remastered that I prefer over the original other than maybe that mono mix of the Ramones. I was actually going to say, I really do prefer that one. And if they had done a couple things differently, I would have really liked the destroyer resurrected, but it felt like there was a few moments that the vocals were too, too loud or like there was some weird panning issues. They tried too hard to play with. Well, you know, that record didn't go over well when it first came out with kiss fans. They thought no. it was, it was, you know, they they were complaining you couldn't hear the guitar on it and uh, you know and i i think that's kind of weird but yeah because it's, it's a very guitar heavy record but you know they were um 
uh, you know, you can see where they were trying to go and what they were trying to achieve. They wanted to make a live in the studio. No, I don't even well, think it was that. I think they were trying to just, I think they were kind of following the, 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 uh, an Alice Cooper kind of path. I mean, they were using Alice Cooper's producer. Yeah. And, you know, he was everything but the kitchen sink. No, he was everything and the kitchen sink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> back then, anyway. And I always say that, you know, when they brought him back to do that revenge record, and I, I don't like any post makeup kiss, really. I, I think that that's, that has no reason to exist. As, but, as you call it, lowercase kiss. Yeah, lowercase. <laughs> <laughs> they, the, the, they did awesome. their revenge record, and I'm like, man, Bob Ezrin, you know, got the production credit but he i guarantee you he was not sitting in the studio mixing knobs and doing stuff he was yeah. coming in they had an engineer doing that and he would come in listen to mixes and then sign off on it mm-hmm. and that's the way they do it now that 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 uh rick rubin guy does it that way you yeah know? he doesn't do any he's barely in the studio with and anybody half celebrity the time. producers and exactly just, what you're paying is to have their name on your record and it's just i don't know it just it's I not so I, i've never understood that approach and why that's so appealing you know i Maybe that's just because I've worked so hands-on anytime mm-hmm. or have been like had everybody in the room with me anytime I've recorded. Well, I think it's because also we have yet to even come relatively close to having a microscopic taste of being able to work with someone like Rick Rubin in order to help sell a record. You know, that point you're you're buying a name to put on the record to help sell you more copies. Yeah. That's basically a long-term investment crossing fingers that well, I'll make my money back by saying he's on this record. I think I don't know. I mean there's 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 people that are like there are people that were like known producers that were desired or whatever once upon a time. And then there were the next level that were almost like celebrities in mm-hmm. their own right. Like, like Phil Spector, Phil Spector. I mean, Brian Wilson was one of the beach boys, but to a point after a point, he was just producing, you know, uh, Eddie Kramer. Well, Eddie Kramer well, he was an engineer pretty, mostly, true. you know, but you had, uh, he was, you know, Glenn Johns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's the famous story about Glenn Johns having the falling out with the Eagles because he had his very particular way of recording. And mm-hmm. they were like trying to, well, can we not do that? Can we do this? Because he'd be like, no. Because, uh, because the, the, Eagles, the Eagles wanted to mic every, every yeah, drum on the kit. Yeah. And uh, Glenn he, Johns was like, well, when I record with John Bonham and Keith Moon, we only need four mics yeah. or whatever. And mm-hmm. Don, their, the Eagles case was like, well, we don't hit hard like Keith Moon yeah, or John yeah. Bonham and shit like that. He'd say, well, hit harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, fuck you, Don Henley. <laughs> and then Bob Ezrin, you know, Bob Ezrin came up. He was, um, people forget, like, I mean, he was in his 20s when he made those records, the Alice Cooper records and mm-hmm. the Lou Reed record and the Kiss records. And then, I mean, I don't think he was 30 by the time they were doing the war. He might have been 30. I might had It was 79, so getting up there probably. And, you know, people forget how young he was. And to think of that is like, All you won't guys. find that now. I was literally just kind of processing that in my head being like, good God. It's like, we're everyone at this table is already older than these motherfuckers, and they're making music better than I could ever dream yeah. of making. All the bands were in their <laughs> early 20s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, you goddamn. Know, most of these people did all this stuff when they were in their 20s, and it's like, well, you know, and that kind of 
kind of depressing when you think about it. But, you know, <laughs> well, it, I, I think of that, course you can look at it from that aspect. I just look at it from like a what a time to be alive in which that people that age have created such monumentally you know important music to you know. I would say the rock and roll culture, even if you're a fan of it or not, you know, that those records are very important to the fabric of rock and roll. And they're still getting played and talked about today. Well, mm-hmm. that's that's the point I always make is it, it kind of just the, the quality will endure. We're talking about stuff like, again, going back to Iggy, who never sold a lot of records. But, you know, here we are. I mean, that record's almost 50 years old. We're still, still talking, talking about, about that. It, the, you know. the, the Ramones never yeah. never sold a million records. I wouldn't consider them a successful band until maybe you know post Joey Ramone's death. Really, and here's my argument on the whole nostalgia shit that people like throwing out there, whether it be being a fan of Star Wars or classic rock or anything that you know was made before you were born. I have before or, y'all were born. Well, that exactly. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Here's my biggest argument on it. Exactly what you said, man. It was before I was born. I don't have a nostalgia attached to it. Mm-hmm. The Ramones should still should be in the exact same ballpark mentally for me as Nirvana. Nirvana. No, because, it. yeah. So it's like, why do I have more of an attachment to the Ramones than I do Nirvana? Both were served to me at the same time because even mom, she wanted me to like popular things because she knew it'd be easier for me. Mm-hmm. So she never once made me feel bad for trying to like something that was modern. So I, that's my biggest argument on people saying, oh, you only like something because of nostalgia. No. I like, you know, I think people like quality. And to me, it's just hard to find that these days. And do we put these bands on a pedestal because we missed out on their heydays? And uh, there's a the legend and the legend built around them as a result, as opposed to, say, somebody like uh, you who grew up with all this. Is it a different perspective being, you know... Well, around it I, I think i think that there's a mythology that gets built that yeah it gets sold to younger generations i mean uh that that was very heavily into play because in the early 80s when uh you know led zeppelin you know broke up after their john bonham died and so there was that generation where led zeppelin almost became this mythic iconic thing that was exceeding beyond just being a rock band. All of a sudden, now they're almost like hallowed. Oh, gods. Yeah, they yeah. were just like you know. And the Beatles and, didn't get and, that treatment. And you you would hear about it, and you would read about it, and that book came out in the mid '80s, the Hammer of the Gods. Yeah, and that really you know hammered it home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you wanted to believe in this mythology, and then they popped up twice in the '80s on these reunions where they did. Uh, they popped up at Live Aid and sucked. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> they were awful. And then they thought, okay, well, that wasn't good, but now we're going to do Maybe the 40th th- anniversary of Atlantic Records, and it was worse. <laughs> it was just like, this is this is the, the mythic Led Zeppelin. Ooh. And they weren't, and then you go and listen to them, and I argue this with people, man, they were never good, ever. They as were, a, it's a live band. I like Led Zeppelin well enough. But, but Jimmy Page played like a two-year-old half the time live. Well, I'm like, you know, <laughs> he did. He, it sounds like he's playing dead rubber bands on a, on a guitar exactly. that's known for like its fat sustain. Yeah. And he, it's like, dude, you know, you could you could get like some sort of overdrive on that too. But instead of like, you know, the 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 studio, I always go to Black Dog. You listen to the studio version of Black Dog. It's this mammoth 
killer riff. Right? Then you hear them live. It's like, oh yeah, it's dingy as hell. They're just, and I'm like, Led Zeppelin were never good live. And you compare them to something like the Who, their own contemporaries. Let's not compare them to somebody today with today's technology. Blah blah blah. I mean, the Who was just would just mop the floor with that. That was just all power and volume. Yeah, and it's just like you know the thing about the Who is it was like you said it was just it was just completely aggro. Even you know, I mean, they would take obviously take their time on their records or whatever, but you know, live they were just so explosive and so dynamic, and that's what made I think going back to your you know tying us all together to bootlegs. I think that's what made bootlegs desirable is because you knew you were going to get something that was a little different. Mm -hmm. You know than what you got on the record um yeah we've actually just gone down a uh, a who rabbit hole recently what was your favorite record from that earlier era what from the who mm-hmm. what do you mean what, what when you say earlier era, what do you, era what do you mean i mean uh we went we talked about who's next and how that was like the uh, gateway record for a lot of who fans and uh mm-hmm. there's like that uh that early era there's that i think when you and me think of early era we think of uh substitute can't explain and okay. all that like pre-tommy you know i'm partial more to the 70s stuff i am too and um, you know, I, I learned the who from a guy named dave wanku who's like one of my best friends mm-hmm. and he's an amazing bass player and he's obviously he's very influenced by the who and john antwistle and he prefers the 60s stuff and i love and his, the 60s stuff. you know he like i think sellouts probably might be his favorite <laughs> um sellouts just a weird record but there's yeah. some good songs on there you know i think you know i think they but i don't think that who really got into defining who they really were until this you know that era of who's until next decided. and stuff and, yeah. and to me you know people some people think i'm crazy but quadrophenia is my favorite who's record i like that more than i like uh who's next Quadrophenia. Yeah. I, I mean, I like them all, but uh, Quadrophenia stands as probably my favorite. And I like... Um, by Numbers isn't a bad record. Uh, I think By Numbers, to me, is like side five and six for Quadrophenia. It's kind of <laughs> like that, you know, what happens after the Quadrophenia people grow up, who's, the, the you know, By Numbers. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know kind of. I mean, it kind of is true. It's, yeah. you know, in, 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 you know, Pete Townsend could write self-confessional shit without sounding mopey about it and he would write about his audience too yeah and that's you know that's kind of the whole thing with quadrophenia so mm-hmm. you know i i just i really love that stuff and so yeah. and I, I like the early who too i mean you know you listen to especially that first the my generation stuff mm-hmm. the record you know and the kids are all right was like my gateway into that and punk rock to an extent because that was the first time i ever got a visual of you know somebody being that batshit crazy on stage yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's funny of all like the bands that you know you've listened to in this and the other, the two bands I usually associate with you are Who are and MC Five, because I, I always any because I always imagine um, it was one of the few times we were hanging out together. You showed me the uh, the old Kick Out the Jams uh, DVD or that that live it's the live footage that everyone fucking has where they wind up just ripping up the stage. Okay, I remember you showing me that and that kind of latching me in and being like ooh i want to check them out but ever since then it's i was telling cap this the other day that's a band that's been hard for me to get into on an audio level but is always endlessly fascinating to watch live i mean all three of their records are very different they you know there's three records that's all you got each one's very different from the other um 
One of them's a live record. The first one was live. Uh, you know, the second one was kind of them almost trying to like Grand Fuck Railroad to try to be, a, you know, to try to make hits. Yeah. You know, and I think the third one is kind of really where they were. You know, I think they're always at where they wanted to be. Um, you know, I don't know how you would find or how it would introduce someone into that. They would have mm-hmm. to find their own way into it, and and you know. I would I, I can understand why people would say they didn't like them or didn't get it or whatever else and I'm you know there's no way for me to to explain it you yeah. just have to find your own way into it it's kind of almost like uh, I talk you know me and me and Jeff like to listen to you know me and Clayton like to listen to jazz yeah and we you know uh, in the past when we still had Gooch in the band you know Barry and Gooch would just be like oh God you know, we were trying to play that you know we were trying to play something like that in the van. Everybody has their one singer, their one band that's just like nobody's yeah. <laughs> into. So, you know, and it's like, well, I get it. I'm not going to try to. I, I couldn't figure out a way. And my entry into jazz was because of the MC5. Oh, and really? The uh, you know some of the bootleg going back to bootlegs, <laughs> bootleg MC5 stuff where they go into like the free form kind of stuff and they're mm-hmm. just kind of almost it's almost just noise. You know, that opened it open up for me to appreciate and understand. I don't know that I understand, but you know, just appreciate, you know, the Avant jazz, the noise stuff, yeah, which is what I really like. And there's something about that to me that feels very much the same as that same aggro feeling that you get from a good punk rock song or or even a good old heavy metal song or any good rock and roll song. Really. And that's to me, you know, what brings it all back to, to just that kind of primal urgency of just mm-hmm. just letting your feelings out emotion without yep. the having to go into that technical proficiency you know it's like the jazz cats had that but here they are just you know blasting away with just they're just you know letting it out i was gonna say and that absolutely makes sense especially from you know a a, a term i've kind of had to come to terms with because it just sounds so fucking pretentious but at the same time it is correct terminology as all three of us here sitting at the table are artists Uh, (laughs) again it's like it's weird to say Uh, excuse me i am an artiste (laughs) (laughs) i beg my pardon sir uh but it's like Maybe that's why music like that connects to us more because, again, we're not just consuming music, we're digesting it, we're taking all of it in. So if we can feel that someone is really letting out some emotion, even if it's just in a single note, in a, you know, in a, yeah, if you can tell that's coming from an earnest place, it resonates with you. Yeah. I like going back into like, um, you know, we talk about drummers and how they were influenced by all the jazz guys. I t- I like doing the historian uh, perspective, and like figuring out uh, where it all comes from. And uh, jazz is one that I've been kind of dipping my toe into, but not, uh, you know, full on yet. So who are some of your favorite jazz guys that, well, you know, I, guys like us should be listening to, to rock guys? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, I, you got to find your own way into it. I, I like, um, again, I like kind of that late 60s early 70s with i don't know if you call it fusion i guess they do i like a lot of fusion but uh, you know when miles started getting kind of freaky and i mean but i like you know classic miles too and coltrane you know but coltrane also did ascension which is just this freeform thing you had ornette coleman did free jazz the album free jazz in like what i think it was like 61 or 62 or somewhere in there i don't know um but uh i like Jeff turned me on to a cat called Pharaoh Sanders. I like 
I got like that four or five like of his guy. records. It's really <laughs> all of his records I've got are really good. Um, and then um, I found a, you know, just on my own. I found I, I you know, I found Don Cherry, and I find you know, and I, I I I find Don Cherry, and then I go back and read, and I realize, oh, this guy's kind of respected, and I'm like, oh, well, then maybe I'm somehow developing an ear for this now. I don't right. know, you know, maybe I'm I'm catching up. Here's a picture of uh, Pharaoh. Uh, Sanders, like, this, here's a jazz guy for you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love know, that suit or that jacket. <laughs> it's that beard that sells it. <laughs> uh, Miles Davis was the one that's uh, the first one I've been kind of dipping my toe into, and that's been the guy that uh, that's been the one that uh, a lot of rock guys will pitch to me, especially okay. that era with you Bitches go, Brew okay, and all that. Here you go. For rock guys, I would say go for the Jack Johnson record because that had the, it's got the, that was, I think, he intended for that to use Jimi Hendrix on that, and Hendrix died, and he used yeah. John McLaughlin instead. Um, then you have, um, I got real big into a guy called Archie Shep, and uh, there's a handful of his records that I like, and they, it's just, you know, he gets into that kind of atonal, kind of scronking kind of. I'm looking up uh, Jack Johnson right now, and no, not the fucking acoustic guitar player from the early 2000s, but the jazz guy. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh... But uh, yeah, it says he was a uh, trumpeter that would compose. Uh, Miles Davis would lead Miles no, no, Davis's no, no. bands. No, the studio. Oh, let me go back. Sorry about Cap, that. Cap's doing some research it's, for it's us. It's based on a boxer. It's a. I think he was using it as going to be soundtrack mu- music for a movie. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, the songs that are listed are "Right Off" and "Yesternow" yeah, and things I mean, like that. That's that's some killer stuff on that. I love that record. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff. I just, no. I, I just kind of go for again. It's feeling. It's what, what, what I find myself attracted to. Um, and you know what? And I think it's also fun to kind of dive into and listen to some music that's maybe not your your immediate first go-to because knowing you for as long as I have, I've known in the past jazz has not been like an immediate go-to for you. So this kind of being a new thing to kind of dip your toe in. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's been there for a while. I just, you know, um, it's just that I don't feel like I'm real knowledgeable about it. And I don't really like to talk about stuff that I don't really know about. And I, I, you know, I probably show a lot of ignorance towards it when I talk about it, which I'm okay with, but, um, but, you know, I, I like I like I like bebop. You know, so I, and I I like, but I don't like like Dixieland jazz. Yeah, mm. you know, and and that might be sacrilegious for some people, but I just that doesn't that doesn't carry for me. So you know, bebop speaks more to that kind of, which I think goes more towards the R and B sensibility, which goes to your rock and roll sensibility. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. So I mean, like you know, I can go back and listen to, uh, certainly Charlie Parker. And that's I enjoy that a lot. So, you know, I I don't know I wouldn't but I wouldn't steer anybody in any one direction. I can just make suggestions and stuff. Because there's like it's kind of like rock and roll or anything else. There's so many like sub genres of jazz and shit too. Kind of like rock and roll by the you know for me it's like once you get in towards the starts kind of tail spinning in the seventies and on into the eighties where it just becomes like not good I just, you know, and like it's just like like progressive that's almost like borderline progressive rock it's it's well, it's not even that it's just become so um i don't know pedestrian sounding even you know and even in its own complexity it's just like it just sounds like you know it just sounds like the soundtrack to some 80s 
police drama or something. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, what, in your mind, even today, was New Wave kind of the death of like that style of music? Or just or like rock music in general? No, I, I don't. I, if anything, it probably gave it a little more extra life. Because I was um, gonna say, I've been kind of having fun starting in the '80s and kind of working backward, kind of like connecting the dots of like, okay, well, the uh, the cars kind of loosely connect uh, sonically to the Blondie, and then that connects well, they, to the yeah. Dolls, and well, it's like yeah. you slowly start removing the synths and seeing, you know, kind of the stripped down version. Think... All of a sudden, you listen to the Cure, and all you're like, oh. This is actually a punk rock song in disguise. Well, exactly. Well, they were born out of that. You know, I think the cars are a little more, um, they were a little more calculated in what they were doing. They're, those guys were older. A lot of people forget how much older they were than everyone else. Right. And they saw what was, they thought was the coming thing and were able to make it work. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying they were just a little more. They saw the trend and hopped on the train well, before they, anyone they, else. They figured out a way to make it commercial in a way that other groups couldn't. Right. Um, you know, like the Ramones were never accepted the way the cars were. No. But I think groups like the cars and the talking heads, and my, I don't know, but my, my kind of theory on this is like for radio, why is it that the talking heads, the clash, the cars, why did they make it to the FM rock radio playlist that exists to this day? And the Ramones and uh, the Dead Boys and the Dictators didn't. Is it yeah. a time? Is it timing? Because everybody talks about Never Ramones documentary that uh, as the Ramones were getting on TV and stuff like that, or was about it, to pop, it was you know was killed by that. bad press by the Sex Pistols. I think it had to do with there was a there was a generation of kids coming out of college that were getting jobs at radio stations, and they were sneaking this in under the radar, knowing well this can get played and probably won't get as it won't stand out and stick out as much as a you know if i play the ramones somebody's gonna give a shitty phone call like what the fuck mm -hmm. but yeah. if i play the talking heads not so much probably not so much well how much do you the think police, the andy the warhol effect too. had on it because it also seems like a lot of the bands that were accepted by radio were also the bands that kind of hung out in that you know more artsy fartsy kind of new york oh, kind of thing all these bands that. were english like the clash and yeah. police yeah and all that about like some of the Those, more u.s bands that were accepted i don't think they were ever really part of that that was late the the, the whole warhol thing was more in the 60s yeah you had the velvets and stuff and warhol I think, it, it was like people gravitated to warhol in the 60s where it seems like by the 70s warhol was gravitating to the people yeah, i was yeah. gonna say that does it make sense warhol's mm -hmm. thing kind of died out you know in the early 70s yeah. but then, i mean you know i mean it was hip to have them around i reckon but i don't think that played into it i just think that it just it was just what they thought they could probably get away with mm -hmm. I, that's just a theory i don't know i just assume that um and the cars but, were from boston yeah so that's a whole other animal wow <laughs> well i mean wait but you know one of those guys had played in the modern lovers okay was it uh it wasn't uh, i think it was their drummer Okay, I know Elliot Easton, I know Rick Ocasek and I'm Ben Orr. I'm pretty sure it was the drummer. I'm not, you know, I'm not super knowledgeable. And I'm not, and that's also what makes it difficult sometimes for me to talk about this stuff because I've been falling into and liking a lot of different stuff, but unfortunately, I, most of my knowledge is taken up by Ramones, Kiss, and Misfits. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, yeah. it's hard for me to you remove know. some of those pieces to retain but, more. But with the cars, <laughs> it's like, that's one of those bands where you can make a. You know, you can go see them live, and it's a greatest hits set list. 
Yeah, you know, for that, two hours. that was the thing that surprised me because we're working with a new producer and you know he he heard something you know in my vocals and was like hey you're kind of just pushing too hard listen to a lot more cars and maybe kind of stuff and kind of give it m- more of that sort of delivery and man it was one of those where i was like okay oh shit i actually know this song oh i know this one. Oh, yeah. oh i know this was the cars holy yeah. fuck and it's like i clicked the greatest hits record i only didn't know two yeah. out of like the 15 songs that were on there even that first record is <laughs> basically a greatest hits record oh yeah even candy yo had a ton of stuff uh-huh. on it there's only a handful of bands that really like put out stuff like that i'll put uh tom petty and the heartbreakers up on that list too and, and that's also a shame because with tom petty that was another one of those examples of it feels like that artist didn't get us due until his death I would, I would it, feel, it feels like a lot of people. That. I'd say people Tom came Betty out of the woodwork no, hard after no, that saying was, they were Tom Petty fans. He was already fans. huge. He was already huge. I, I just, I've never been a big Tom Petty fan. I, I, I like some Tom Petty, but I like the hate on him too. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like everyone and their brother turned well, into that Tom the, Petty no, fan no, when he well, died. The, the thing about that always irritates me about Tom Petty is it's, it, I, you know, if you've read the Anthony Bourdain book. Um, the kitchen confidential book and he talks about hating chicken and he goes chicken's what you order when you don't know what you want to eat i know it <laughs> and tom petty is what you know uh drunken frat boys and sorority yep. girls play on a jukebox when they don't yep. know what they want to listen to and that made me hate tom petty. i'd love back down i love this song no guys. no it's free falling it's like where i was going to school <laughs> i used to fucking Get hate fuck tom petty. i used to hate tom petty because of that reason too but then uh, I don't know. I guess started playing it's, on. It's just so mediocre. It's so pedestrian. It's so <laughs> it's so just. I mean, vanilla to the point where it's not even good vanilla. It's that it's that you know vanilla ice milk that you you know you buy off of food stamps kind of shit. You know, it's like it's it's so bad. I knew I would hit one. I knew I would there hit one. Is. I've been fishing. No, there's some Tom Betty songs that aren't that way, but particularly the like you all forget like when he. he 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 made I don't know even what the album's called, but it had that free falling song, which I fucking Full hate. Moon Fever, yeah. <laughs> and, that's yeah, that's the one you know, I, I guess never that's technically a solo record for him. Yeah. And I'm like, man, it's just and I watch sounds like a Tom Petty Heartbreaker. I will watch any music documentary that's on just about and I watched one on him and he was talking about one of his guys in the band was just like he found him sulking in the hallway he said and he's like well what's wrong man he's like man he goes i just the song we're working on i really hate it it just really sucks i don't like it i can't and he goes and the song was free falling and yeah. i was like that guy was smart <laughs> and he quit the band over it i think i think so i think it was the drummer yeah i'm like fucking smartest thing that guy ever did i want to quit over that I'd song too smartest thing is biggest hit <laughs> but that that whole record was huge i mean it was just a oh, it yeah. was like y'all are too young to know this because y'all weren't i don't you know you weren't even born but yeah. Uh, you know that that year that record came out it was like every couple of months there was a new video new you know yeah. it was just like full everything moon, yeah full moon fever uh free fall and what year did a, that come out that was 1989 oh jesus christ yeah Ugh. at free Fallen, won't back down running down a dream oh, you're so bad that's a great fucking song <laughs> <laughs> I love, i'm a sucker for mike campbell they're their guitar player is one of my all-time favorites. The 12-string Ricky's man. Ah, oh, it's the shit. <laughs> I just, man, I just, I, I just like, God damn it. That's like the most 
vanilla fucking stale white bread bullshit, man. I'm like, and people are like, that rocks. I'm like, God, if you think that rocks, you have a very shallow. See, I don't even approach these these albums like, you know, I'm going to rock out to Tom Petty or some shit like that. I just look at, look at them as a collection of songs. Maybe it's because I never went to college. <laughs> no, but college almost ruined Tom Petty for I, me. <laughs> ironically, a lot of what passed as college rock, particularly in the 80s, I think, um, was that kind of... There was an era that was sort of after new wave and before, you know they didn't have a definition for it they you know what was punk became new wave and what was new wave became alternative yeah but between new wave and alternative there was this sort of no man's land where there were these bands that kind of popped up and didn't do anything and the, you know uh, they were just sort of kind of lost the time and there and then- was a and that's what heavy, and that's what heavy metal did to fill that void in that oh, time I guess, period. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I can get it. If you're 14 in that era, it wasn't going to connect with you because there was a lot of it was power pop based, yeah, um, post knack kind of stuff. And you know, you had groups like Let's Active, or a group like the Blasters, or or a group like the DBs and stuff. And this is stuff I got to hear up when I was a kid living outside of Norfolk. There was a girl that played this stuff on the radio. Hmm. And, you know, it's always stuck in my head. And I think, looking back, I think it was really influential in, in, you know, my formative years to have that kind of an angular kind of thing coming in where I was trying to be little Johnny Metalhead. But I'm hearing all this melodic kind of, you know, pop-driven. And it's rock and roll music. It was just, you know, two guitars, bass, drums, you know. You you really, you, you gave me that moment. How's that? Uh, Mr. Punk Rock only listened to the Misfits and Germs and Annie scene. Hanging out with you, you were like, have you listened to Brownsville Station? Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was like, yeah, smoking in the boys' room. You're like, no, 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 no. This is Brownsville Station. And well, you put on Rockers and Rollers. Yeah. And I remember that being the first one. It's like... I. Heavy, hearing that heavy guitar riff mixed in with just the keys and yeah. everything else, and well, just that's how... the only record that's like that. That 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 last album they did uh, with the can't can't remember the guy this name. They brought in Dave Nazarian, I think it was his name, mm-hmm. and he came in as a second guitar. Most of their stuff's pretty boogie kind of rock. And... Well, it's like I I always cite that moment as like the wake up moment, oh, yeah. where it's like it's like I had understood Kiss, but even listening to Kiss after hearing that. That song even kind of put it in a new light where all of a sudden I was like you know what I like more songs like Mr. Speed oh, you yeah, know stuff oh, that yeah. had more of just that you know kind of groove rock to it and it, that really opened my eyes I, I still definitely I call that one bands. of my top five formative music moments that well, and like getting kicked in the ass by Jeff Clayton on stage after being on the brat <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kiss doesn't get any any of the recognition they probably should deserve especially on those formative records of theirs um, but they were, they were really just kind of, I mean, to be fair, I mean, Kiss were, were retreading a tire off of what they were influenced by, which, you know, you if you go back and listen to, you can, you know, the Raspberries, Slade, Slade um, or even like the Beatles and the Who. Well, the Beatles and the Who are obvious, but, you know, uh, stuff like, um, I don't know. Particularly Slade, I, I you know I hear Slade all over early Kiss, mm-hmm. and actually because of that, that's what's caused me to go back and re-listen to some of those earlier stuff because it's just now showing up on Spotify. Or the, the Move, I know they were big into Roy Wood stuff. So you know it, it's it's 
you know, you see the lineage of how that stuff kind of dovetails together. Yeah, and that that's part of the fun for me is to go back and listen to groups like Slade and then find those little pieces and be like, oh, that makes sense on this Kiss record and all that and, you know, well, things like that. I mean, it goes right down to what was Slade's first live record called. Oh, man, I don't listen to live record all that much. It's called Alive. Yeah. What's Slade's second live record called? Alive 2. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that one. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's that, you know. And I think Alive 2 for Slade is better than Alive, but I don't know. I agree with me on that. Slade just got so much material from that time period, too. I think people don't, you know, they weren't big in America, but they were gigantic, fucking enormous over in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't I see how it's great it that Slade here. covered Iron Maiden. Or um, or quite uh, right, quite right. <laughs> well, that's you know that's you would think that would be more famous over here as because a result of that. Well, they 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 got to they got a little spin off of that because the year after Quite Right had the big hit with that, then they they had the they got an American release. I don't even think it was slated to get released in America. Slated, <laughs> but um. They called it. It had a different title they, out here. It was called "Keep Your Hands Off My Power Supply," and then I think in Europe it was called "The Great Kamikaze Syndrome" or something like that. Oh wow! But they I ended really up having don't know a hit which one I like better. <laughs> well, it's kind of like that sweet deal where it had a couple of different tracks on it, mm-hmm. and but they ended up having a big hit over here with a song called "Run Run Away." Yep. And that's kind of what they're known for here in America is for that one song. But, but even that and one just kind of forget. sounds like a. An I 80. like it. I think it's good. I get it. I understand. Yeah, it kind of falls into that '80s thing. But um, here's some good songs on that record. I, you know, I Slave were always good for a couple of. Some of their records are pretty weak and thin, but. Yeah, like but their, their heyday in the early seventies were all pretty, pretty, pretty strong. Yeah, they could, and they had so many tracks on those albums too. Mm-hmm. But then they would, they would make a record, and they'd come back like their big comeback for England. They, they took a spot on one of the, I guess it's the Reading Festival in nineteen eighty. I forget. I think they, I think they took Ozzy's spot. Oh wow, <laughs> that's and a spot to take. Up, well, I mean, Ozzy was not, not at that point. Ozzy was post Sabbath before he became. Yeah, this would have been right oh, at the right beginning at of his solo it. thing. So what? It was like an afternoon opening slot. Got it. it. But it ended up working out really well for them. They had this really killer song around that time called "We'll Bring the House Down," and it's like it's one of those great forgotten songs. It's like you know they they do that anthemic kind of thing really well. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. I was gonna say I was, one of my favorite deep cuts I found lately is uh, their version of uh, "Come On Baby Let the Good Times Roll." Yeah, that, that, that's a great one. Off of Slade with a Y, with, with the, a question mark. With the question yeah. mark. <laughs> well, yeah. I love that cover. Like I've joked about it in our group chat. I've sent that song a few times. Going like, we need to cover this song and do a parody of that album cover because I don't know what member it is. But this guy with like the hard fucking bowl cut that's on the far right. He's fucking jacked and he's like flexing yeah, that's, too. That's uh, you know that's the where. Johnny Ramone got his idea for his bull cut, right? Really? Was so, it? Johnny Ramone's, one, I think Slade was his favorite band. No shit. He was, was full like, on I'm, glam rock for a minute, too. Yeah, because yeah, he, he had the fucking silver pants yeah. and the cheetah yeah, yeah. Uh, jacket yeah, and shit. Yeah, Mikey needs to be Yes. I, we've joked, and we've joked that it's like we've got to do a parody of that cover too, yeah. and our guitarist is Jack. Be like, we just got to get you shirtless. <laughs> Grows damn hair out. <laughs> we'll throw a wig on him. Fuck it. <laughs> they have a ballad called "Every Day" that's on the the live version is fucking killer on live too. Mm-hmm. It's just such a 
just and it's great because you know you got the kids kind of like in the the studio version it starts with piano but live they're playing guitar and so they're not really sure you know the crowd you know they're, they're just drumming that opening note and when he sings the first word you know it goes every day and the, you hear the whole all the girls you know ah! <laughs> it's such a great you know that's it goes, that's what makes live albums so great i think is like you know you, you hear that kind of participatory yeah. kind of thing that you don't get in the studio thing and the song just has so much more power and oomph than the studio version which again it's why it makes these live albums so so cool to have or so interesting if you can you know the variations when i think it, gave the bootlegs their appeal mm-hmm. and uh and talking on bootlegs you were saying even earlier was something that blew my mind was you're saying that the the bootleg trading market really even started in the 70s with record companies doing it i didn't think that they would actually invest so much money in actually pressing a record to do that i figured it's really started with the tape trading in the 80s and you know and then you fast forward all the way to today when you, it's coming back around full circle where record companies are doing vinyl pressings and at times doing it better than the fucking band. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, you know, the the 70s market, I mean, it's, it is interesting to think that the, it, it, the bootleg thing had its own cottage industry that was so strong that the commercial industry felt the need to rival it yeah with their own official releases but then i just bought a bootleg of a, a kiss bootleg it was a box set and it looks nicer than anything that you could buy commercially i mean or it looks as nice as anything and it's nicer than anything they themselves have ever put out mm-hmm. interesting kiss, kiss live set i haven't played it because i didn't buy it for that i found it online a couple of months ago and it was just an unboxing i saw the video on youtube and i'm yeah. like what the hell is this <laughs> because it's i mean each disc is in its own slipcase it's got its own you know it's it's not a paper sleeve and it's but it's not quite the same quality of a as a uh, actual its own you know like a record vinyl cover. right but it's it's a hard cover slipcase for each record each record is uh a picture disc, mm-hmm. you know, and each one's tailored to each member of the group. Right. You know? Of course. And, um, then it came with a book. It's like an 80 page book. Wow. Yeah. It's got, and it has like, you know, like it, it's set up like if, as if kiss would have done it themselves. It's got like, you know, some, uh, postcards and some repro tickets. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's all centered around a live show that they did at Ma- Madison square garden. I was say what time period it's 1978, I think. Okay. December of 78. Um, well, yes, yeah, so that would have been like the tail end of the love gun alive Two yeah. tour. So it's all, it's all tail, tailored like that. And then I found out apparently that whoever did this has done a series of them. There's a Kobo hall one. And then the one, and then there's a, there's a dynasty tour one. Oh, wow. And I, I almost bought that one. I found that one too. They're fucking hard to find. I, I, I spent, I, I was looking for this one and I found it by accident looking, looking at something else. Yeah. I was like, Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and then, you know, you sit there for a minute and you're just like, do I keep looking for what I want? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then it's like, 
Okay, I got a credit card. <laughs> I, know, I've, I, I hate when that shit happens, especially because, again, if you had found it as soon as you saw it, you would have seen them and just been like, okay, cool, that exists. Move the fuck on. It's, it's because you found it and you yeah. knew it's hard to find. I don't expect that the sound quality on it's going to be good at all, not just because it's a picture disc, but because I think the source recording is probably terrible. Yeah. I looked up the show and tried to find what I thought might be the source recording, mm-hmm. and it's... It was pretty terrible. They're, start, um, they're starting to put up videos on YouTube uh, that are uh, full-on Kiss live shows <clears throat> with uh, multiple camera angles and things like that that uh, haven't been loaded by uploaded by Kiss or anybody in their camp whatsoever. I, well, but, you know, that goes into a whole other territory. You start talking about those videos, it's like, you know, who, the, are the, the problem with those videos for groups is that, like, most of the live videos that exist in bootleg live videos are usually from uh, there's a lot from Winterland there's yeah. a lot from the uh, the old summit in Houston mm-hmm. there's a lot from the uh, Capitol Center in DC Largo yeah everything that's on the box sets and then there's a lot from uh, the um, was it the Capitol Theater in Passaic but they all had in-house camera systems and that's why there's so many from these four places mm-hmm. and you know the thing is is the venue owns the 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 actual tape yeah okay so now they whoever possess you know whoever has the ownership right owns the video that doesn't mean they have the right to sell it or distribute it because the material contained on it belongs to the you know the the the, the, uh what do they call that the intellectual rights yeah you know yeah so that belongs to them. But now, most of the times, these groups have sold their catalog to, you know, whoever. Yep. So now the licensing rights for that belongs to, you know. So now you've got this labyrinth of different people all, you know, that's why live video is so difficult for them to, to develop and market, even though it exists and it's out there. And so it just winds up on YouTube as bootleg. One of my favorite stories talking about uh, copyright and intellectual property and stuff is actually, again, pull it back to Kiss because it's just what I have the most knowledge on, that um, it was the Rock and Roll Over Tour where they actually started using bits of the Love Gun stage, like the walk down planks. Mm -hmm. And I think it was in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. That specific show was filmed for an HBO special. And it it, It aired on HBO. Exactly. And if the story is true, literally Gene said he read the copy, uh, like read the thing and hand wrote in there in so many words, you're allowed to air this once afterward we own the master tape and completely just like kind of out of the blue and they actually mailed the master tape after it was aired. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that it played out like that. It wouldn't surprise me. I know a lot. Again, it, I know. Yeah. I, I do know an inordinate amount of you know useless trivia about that show. Mm-hmm. You know, they that was the first time they used that stage. Do you know the whole story about that? It was like they couldn't get over certain pieces. Because- no, they had to get the whole thing over. What they did was they had to uh, fly the plane that carried it unpressurized. And the guys that flew the plane had to wear like uh, almost like astronaut suits. Wow. Because the plane was unpressurized because it was so heavy. Oh, <laughs> that wow. was the only way they could get it over there. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. I'm, I'm now, at- Kiss and all the rest of them flew over on a exactly they're on their kiss plane that was where they went over and they they had made arrangements ahead of time for them to come in with customs where they could just come in and not have to worry about the process of customs Hmm. well there were that 
there was a delay and somehow there was a shift change in the in the whole or you know the part that knew that kiss was coming they had made all their arrangements from now the next shift came in and they didn't know anything about it <laughs> or so, give a fuck so right. kiss comes in and they're like they look at their passwords and they're like, yeah, you're going to have to take all this makeup off. Because they were going to come off the plane, you know, and ask Kiss, you know, because their fans were going to be like, you know, it's like Beatlemania over there. Yeah. Yeah. So they had to go and take their makeup off and <laughs> then reapply it to get out of the airport, you know, to finish out whatever they had, you know, their old PR thing. Yeah, but if I was in the group, probably Peter attitude at that point, that would have been the first oh, time I brought bro, up. Man, this is yeah. bullshit. That's what the first time I would have brought up. Do we really want to keep up this makeup bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do this every fucking time. Yes, every time, Peter. And, uh, <laughs> every country. And to bring it right back to the fucking bootlegs, recent news. I'm pretty interested in this one. I've got to see the price first. And it's got to be a good price because exactly what you're saying, the damn package and everything sucks because it's an official release. But Kiss is starting to do an official bootleg release thing. And the first show they're releasing is Tokyo Dome from 2001. Why? That's an interesting show because that's Ace and Eric. I was going to say. And they're releasing that on vinyl as a two-disc set. And I'm kind of interested in that one because I'll I'll go and say I'll I actually like the Eric Singer Ace Frehley combo because I've heard low quality bootleg versions of that show on YouTube. That's a pretty tight show. Well, it's going to be. I mean, it's, it's you know for as great as Peter Chris was in the early '70s, even by the end of the '70s, he had lost it. And you know those shows that he did all through the reunion tour. I mean, some of it was serviceable, but some but, of it's just it's just bad. There's yeah. no four ways around it. And they sampled all his uh, drum hits too, or they put uh, triggers, triggers on, on it. Triggers, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, but I mean that that's probably more common than anyone realizes. But yeah. um, but I'm interested in that show to be honest, and it's an odd one for them to pick as the first well, release. I mean, you know, I don't think they're going to do Peter any favors, and they, they just want product. And yeah, they know they've got it, and you know. And they know that they slap a kiss logo on it. That there's there's a contingent that will buy it regardless. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I say it's really got to be a good price for me to like want to pick it up is because the cover just looks like, in essence, a cardboard box with like the stamp on it, kiss official bootleg or whatever it is with the date, you know, kind of stylized and shit. Yeah. It just looks like a rubber stamp on a piece of cardboard. And I'm like, well, that, that, see, kiss shouldn't do that. I mean, kiss is one the one group that really should always take time as they always have. And they're, well, they did, did in the seventies with their packaging. That's part of what made kiss records so much fun was the packaging. And, and, you know, if they don't do that now, it's kind of pointless. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Four, Here we go. Four disc black vinyl set. Yeah, Kiss Off the Soundboard is what that, they're calling that, it. That, that, yeah. That, that doesn't that, look interesting to me at all. Not at no. all. And that's why I said that it's got to be a good price for me to be able to, like, get excited about it. Otherwise, I'll I'll be a fucking ARG pirate and hop yeah. online and find the... Someone's going to do a fucking rip of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like that fucking... Uh, the New Year's Eve show that they were trying to sell for like $200 for the cheapest fucking ticket or $50 for the cheapest ticket, whatever it was. I found I'm, it on YouTube the next day. <laughs> I'm sitting here going, I'm like, there's no way I'm paying that price for it because one, something's going to go wrong 
during the live stream and the, the people aren't going to be able to watch it, or B, it's going to be on YouTube within the hour. And sure enough, it was on YouTube within the hour, and there was a technical glitch in the first minute and a half of the show was cut. Uh, <laughs> so I was sitting here going like, yep, both of them. <laughs> it wasn't good. It no. wasn't. No, it's like any I think other it's, also, it's like, A, those their live shows haven't been great anyway, but B, I think that's a prime example of a band that needs an audience to feed off of. Because the little bit of energy they still have left, they need that audience. Well, that's for. a band that just needs to just go away and just I agree. Stop. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, I, I, it's hard to be a Kiss fan, and the reason why it's so hard to be a Kiss fan is because there's still a Kiss that exists, and a half-assed one at the. And it's very not good. What do you think of a uh, Soul Station? I haven't listened. <laughs> to it, I don't care. <laughs> I just, just, just all of them need to go away. <laughs> Paul's, Paul's got something to, to prove. He's always going to have something to prove. If you read his book, it's the crash course in the inferiority complex. So he's got to prove everybody wrong. And, well, that's fine. And, you know, I think it's at least he's doing something that's like not kiss like, I guess. Yeah. You give him credit on that. I mean, fine. Go do your thing. And if he can do something with it, great, whatever. But, I mean, to me, my theory on kiss is like none of them individually, either Gene and Paul doing kiss after Ace and Peter, Ace and Peter solo, Gene doing any his solo record, Paul's solo record. Nobody has done anything of quality that was of any substance or any, you know, even marginally interesting, maybe Ace. But at the end of the day, none of it's been good. None of it. Yeah. And then people are like, oh, if they just get back together, that's not going to help. No. It's not going to be good either. What makes you think they're going to, if they can't do it on their own individually, what makes you think collectively they're going to come back together? And they, you know. And if they couldn't even do it consistently in the 90s, early 2000s. None of it's good. I mean, it's just, it's just meh. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not even so much some of it, some of it's bad, but it's not even that it's so much that it's bad. It's just that it's so meh, which makes it even worse than being bad. So, and I think that's part of the reason we kind of get excited when we find, you know, certain bands that are actually like releasing new music that we can actually dig into and enjoy. I mean, hell, one of them you turned me on to that still releases music to this day is Danko Jones. Yeah. Is that that's why I actually get excited when I find bands I kind of hold on to a little bit of that DNA because it's like, ooh, there's someone I get to kind of follow and enjoy and get excited about a new record coming out. And, you know, that was actually one that you turned me on to. And ever since then, I've been able to find other people and I've become friends with them, sometimes sparring, sparring from the fact they were also Danco Jones fans. Like even uh, Tony, uh, when I moved to Charlotte and I was roommating with him for a little bit, I forget which way it went. I was either listening and he barged in or he was listening and I barged in. But either way, there was a moment in which we like connected and we were like, you know who the fuck Danco Jones is? Holy shit! Because that's mm-hmm. a one that not a lot of people really know about. I don't about. know much about him. I just had that one thing and I thought you'd enjoy it so I passed it to you. And that yeah, was, and I took it and fucking ran with it, man. <laughs> and that was one of those bands that kind of like uh, introduced me to like the whole world of Scandinavian rock. Even though they're a Canadian band, they would play shows with all these Scandinavian rock bands yeah. all the time and play because Danko's audience is Canada and Europe. Yeah. And that's it, basically. There's still more of an audience that appreciates kind of rock and roll like America. That's, com- 
you know, it's kind of a dead issue in America. Yeah. The only American rock bands we can find that we like have been people that we can thankfully also now consider to be friends. They're all doing that are also in the underground circuit. (laughs) Well, I mean, but it's, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, as far as like as a commercial music, uh, rock and roll is dead at least in America. I mean, most kids that are 14 are not going to listen to a guitar driven rock and roll band. They're going to listen to hip hop. Yeah. And, and you Rap, know what? And R&B. that's why at the end of the day, I may not be the biggest fan, but I still respect people like Slash that still at least release guitar-driven records. Yeah. I may not be the but, biggest I mean, fan of the music the he same, makes. Well, same, but I, that's what I'm saying. If it's not good, what's the point? And I think part of what makes, you know, and it kind of, you asked this earlier, it's like, mm-hmm. I forget how you phrased it, but part of why music, rock music isn't popular anymore is that so much of it is just, it's not that it's so much that it's bad it's just not good not rememberable it's not good enough it's not memorable it doesn't really grab you it's it's instead it's it harkens back to something you may not already know or or it, it harkens back to something that's too familiar like yeah or or yeah i mean it's become like uh you know and it's almost like um for a lot of people it's all I, I liken it to like in the late 80s or the mid 80s when rockabilly became a thing like a mm-hmm. you know it's, it was a it became a very stylized thing and i think you know now you got these guys that are doing like 80s style thrash right down to the clothes they wear mm-hmm. you know and i'm like well that now it's just a costume it's an affectation you can put it on and you can be what you grew up liking it's, or it, what you think it's it ret- once was it's retro it is all retro and there's no real modern rock and roll and i don't know that it should or could well uh, I, I heard an interview that nick anderson did where he hates the term retro and all that stuff uh, talking about all the music that he likes making it's like he doesn't want to make retro music he make he wants to make timeless music well yeah and and but that's the tricky part isn't yeah it? that's the point i guess we're trying to make mm-hmm. it's like how do you do that you know no one ever refers to like classic country as retro they you really know, don't they don't there's You're no right. because You're it's right. because it was so timeless you know and it's like now you hmm. got traditionalists that are you know are purists right. to a certain era or certain you know and but you don't have you know you have people that are doing kind of traditionalist or neo-traditionalist kind of country but no one ever goes oh they're doing a retro thing is that because we uh the radio stations fucked up by calling their uh calling the stations classic rock probably Ooh. i mean that was probably part of it i mean before they called it classic rock it was album oriented rock and which is, i think it's still probably i don't know what or like you know, fm rock FM, or whatever a, well they had it it was all the formats which kind of rose up in the late 80s you had aor album oriented rock and you had contemporary rock, you know, and mm-hmm. top 40. And, you know, it just sort of, everyone likes to have things neatly categorized. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's easier that way. It makes it easier to consume because, like you said, it's a consumable. It's a commodity. It's not like your normal, you know, if you go to a museum and you look at art on the wall, if you want to buy a painting, the paintings are going to vary greatly in their price. And they're going to be very expensive because that's what you're going to get is the one. You could buy the original, but if you buy the print, it's going to be... A, you know the print will be more affordable it's yeah. not the original but with records it's all a print mm-hmm. you know so what makes you know what makes the quality of one group better than the quality of the other when they're both 7.99 at walmart mm-hmm. you know what i mean and mm-hmm. it's like where what where do you you know how does that get it's, judged it's, it's uh, something else i've heard like you and williams and even mom reference which is the soft serve ice cream where it's like you've, you've got the big conglomerate and it's like yeah. Number one artist, number yeah. one artist, or you flavor of the week, flavor of the week. Yeah, but I mean, 
that's just uh, so the way I kind of have taken my approach to it is like what I do. I I'm not worried about you know Jeff would probably slug me. I don't worry about the money in. You know, that's not what the what? that's not my motivation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this money is we, we don't you know we don't make money in this. Like, no. I mean, there's money to be there's you know we sure you can score a little pocket change along the way, but you know that's not as the we've always said. You you don't you don't play in a band to make money. You make money to play in a band. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I, I you know, and honestly, like I remember one time we were we were debating about what shows to take and what shows not to take. And it, it made me happy to hear him say it. Jeff kind of got frustrated. Was like, "Well, what? We just not ever play." And and when he, in saying that, he under yeah, I understood what he was saying. It was like the love and the desire and the and the and the, and the, and the whatever you want to call it, the passion to do what you're doing mm-hmm. wasn't money motivated. It wasn't motivated by even you know whatever standard of success. It was to do it. You know, and it's that's, the purpose. That's I think what sets a lot of people different, especially like you guys and, 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 and us. And you had Jeff Williams on last week, you know, I know the motivations of those guys is because it's just something that's in them and it's gotta, you know, it, it's just gotta be done. Um, and, and it's funny because you're, that's not the first time you kind of vocalized that to me about, you know, you, a true musician has to create music even if they're not in a band they just have to have a guitar in their hand doing something and it's very interesting because using that as an example that helped me understand myself later especially because um there was that time period where uh where we had our first drummer and then i had to go through the major first time of having to find the new drummer and it took forever and that spiraled me into a depression that felt different because I didn't have a band to play with every weekend or a show to look forward to. Just to the point where that's when Cap and I started doing our acoustic stuff and it it made me realize, and I remember you even talking about the whole thing, it's like, well, there's a difference between a hobby band and being in a band because you have to be in a band. And that's when it made me realize, I was like, okay, I'm one of those people that has to be in a band. You just kind of have it in you. It's like, yeah, I, it, it, it's a sickness. I don't know. Yeah, I wish I didn't it have it. <laughs> it would be a lot easier if I didn't have it. <laughs> a lot cheaper, too. <laughs> but, but that dream of, of stardom or recognition or whatever, and all that's nice or whatever, but... Um, you know that's not what motivates you it's not it's not you know there's no end game other than this the act of creating and that's enough you know Mm -hmm. Uh, look at eddie ford you know self-made monsters have been together 20 25 years now i think yeah i mean those guys i don't i don't know that they've ever played 25 shows you know i mean i'm sure they have but i mean they play so infrequently and they have no they're so indifferent towards that. He is so <laughs> indifferent towards all of that stuff. You know, that's not what he, what motivates him. You know, it, it's, he's content to, you know, hole away in his, you know, where they're at and do their thing and do it their way without mm-hmm. any, any concern whatsoever as to how it's received or if it's received at all. And I mean, there's a point where you're kind of like, you, 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 you know, obviously the end has to justify the means to a point, but right. you know where that point is is different for everybody. You yeah, know, it's a sliding scale. So. And, and my scale has definitely kind of slid some. Early on, it was definitely that drive of I want anything and everything to kind of pop. And it's de- starting with possibly the last record, especially moving into what we're writing now. It's that mind frame of we just want to make the best thing possible and 
if it pops, so be it. But if not, we still just want to make what we feel is like the best music we can create. All three of us have like varying degrees of experience and things like that too. Mm-hmm. So we kind of know how, uh, work, how the industry kind of sort of works in varying degrees. Yeah. And, and it's like, and it's, I think the best thing possibly that I could ever tell someone kind of starting out as a band is just don't ever get your hopes up. Just yeah. always enjoy every little thing that comes through because again, it's, Exactly what you said, Russ. We're not in it for the money. You got to be in it for the joy of it. And it's well, like finding the joy of it I is think, sometimes difficult. I don't even think it's the money. I think for like, uh, you know, on, uh, on any kind of localized thing, I think it's, there's sort of an element of a popularity contest involved. And, you know, oh, yeah. like, I think that's know. the plight of any sort of creative is there's a bit of narcissism and a bit of look at me built but, in. And, 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 you know, and I, I say that, you know, I'm guilty of that to a degree. I think, you know, I think everyone, like I said, everyone enjoys that recognition. So I'm not I'm not necessarily crumbing on it, but it's not a good motivation to have. Yeah. And I think people sometimes lose sight of their own creativity in des- in, in pursuit of that popularity. And that creates, you know, you know, when you got bad, like you said, I hate, I hesitate to use the word art. Yeah. But you get, you know, when you get uh, an impure motivation, you get bad art, and bad art create, you know, you causes everything else to suffer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I like, you know, I don't worry about stuff like the scene and all this stuff, you know, because most of that's propagated by impure motivation and bad art and you know and, and scenes come and go and it comes and goes i mean yeah you look at it i was you look at just in history where things have been really good for places you, had, you know liverpool in the 60s you had uh new york city in the 70s you would have had uh la in the 80s well, i was gonna say or even manchester you know yeah and then and then seattle and mm-hmm. after that there has been no scenes thing that has come up really there's been yeah. no, you know there's been none of that and you can or you can go into other areas we were talking to you know like jeff likes the 70s you know r&b and stuff you look at the 60s you had motown there you had uh memphis with stacks or mm-hmm. muscle shoals with the swampers or mm-hmm. you know or then you conversely you got some more urban sounding like uh the philadelphia soul sound and that stuff mm-hmm. so everything had its thing but you don't have i don't think i don't see any of that on any level and haven't in 25 years and, uh, and then maybe i'm just completely ignorant to some to some stuff I, I think which is I, you know I, I would plead guilty to but i mean I, I would also plead guilty to it to an extent also for myself because i'm i'm certainly not in tune with what's big and popular but people have to uh, fill me in like i'm i'm just now kind of coming around to figuring out who the weekend is that guy that did the super bowl halftime oh, yeah, show yeah, apparently yeah. he'd been around for a while and i'm yeah. just now figuring out who he I is i never and heard show. of him until he popped up with this super bowl thing. yeah same here so i I'm pretty disconnected too, but I still also feel like you're kind of on to something because after Seattle, when you're like, it feels like there's really not a scene after that. I feel like that's kind of when music shifted into celebrity because that's when you started getting Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, a lot of pop. And that pop was associated with celebrity and California and Hollywood. Well, that's Even Marilyn Manson. Of it. And mm-hmm. I think that's because they want to they want to commoditize this thing. Exactly. Is that a word, commoditize? If it, it is now. Yeah. Yeah. It is now. You said it out loud. And, and, and they want to have that because it's easier for, for them, they, whoever they are. Yeah. 
to manipulate it. So, but that's always been at play. I mean, you had the teen pop idol as far back as the sixties or even the fifties, you know, I mean, you had, uh, you know, the Osmonds in the seventies, mm-hmm. you, you, disco the, duck the, and there's trash. No, music from, no, I'm there's saying, trash. But, you know, I'm saying as far as that's like, a fucking pull. Holy I'm just saying shit. There, there's even, trash music from every era. Even you talked about the sweet, uh, the sweet were still early on part of a, a little conglomerate that produced pop hits for, oh, yeah. for preteens. I mean that, that kind of bubble gum sweet. glam mm-hmm. glitter thing from the early. So, and, but you know, and the irony is, Sometimes the head catches the tail. There's a quality, an enduring yep. quality to that. And, you know, I, I forget who it was. I think it was, uh, you know, the, the two guys that were the real pro- the, the propulsion for all that in the early 70s were the team of uh, Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Nicky Chin who said, a great pop song takes 15 minutes right and three weeks to forget. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. It, but cynical... But, you know, but they were churning them out to the point where they were actually, the record labels were working in conjunction to free up, you know, their, their release schedule so the other guy could have his fair oh, shot. Oh, wow. Because mm-hmm. they all knew. It's yeah, like, look, we're all going to get our shot. Yeah, <laughs> because it was the same two guys producing and recording, you know, writing and recording all this stuff. Wow. But, you know. See, Chapman and Chen, I'm looking up. Mike Chapman ended up. up producing later on, like in that the 70s. That does sound more familiar. He, produced, he ended up, I mean, he had hits. You know, he did the, the the they called it the chin chap sound. They mm-hmm. they did they did sweet Susie did, Quattro, Susie okay, Quattro, okay, and stuff yeah. like. And then later on, Mike Chapman went and did Blondie. Yep. And then he did Huey Lewis in the News. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's enough bands there. That's why I recognize that the guy. Name a bit you know, more. I mean, he was he was he had his finger in the in the mix the whole time, and yeah. it was it was not you know, and it was very much a commercial enterprise. Which I mean, that's what commercial music is. You know, they're yeah. trying to write songs that you know people are going to buy it's like this is that's what the bit music business yeah. cor- revolves around and, and you know and that's the that's that weird fulcrum point is like obviously you want to write something that people are going to enjoy but at what point do you sacrifice what you're putting into it for the sake of just having you know commercial success mm-hmm. you know and that that's a that's and then I find it interesting and then talking about, you know, kind of the manufacturer, you know, situation or the I consider any band that gets signed to a major label a manufacturer success because the label is looking at the band going, I we can make money out of this, well, even I, if the band I, came from an organic place. So even looking at a band like Greta Van Fleet, a, a, a label could turn around and go, Well, look, we're trying to push rock back into the mainstream and people don't like it. Being completely deaf to the fact that it's just such a blatant ripoff of something that's been done before. Yeah, and I think, but they were trying to, and it's that formula thing. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, we know this works. You know, that, there's your, you know, another another example of what they call retro. Yeah, I mean, and and just in such a way that it even defies, you know, anything other than being what it is. So obviously, so blatantly that it's just so crass. Um, and I don't think those guys have any clue that what they're doing is so crass, which kind of almost makes it noble in a way. But it's just really, are you that ignorant? And the answer is, oh, yes. They're they're (laughs) super young, too, I think. So I don't don't think they have a clue. They just don't, you know, and it's like, I I feel bad because I think those guys are going to one day hit 40 and look back and just be like, oh, yeah. That's I can't I'm, believe I did that. I think, yeah, I thought <laughs> you know? about that too. What's going to happen when they uh, get on the other side of their uh, success? And they, realize, and, then, and they realize just how crass they were and how, you know, it was just so, you know, 
whatever. Yeah. But I mean, and it's a shame because it's like if you deconstruct each of those parts, I'm sure the guy is a great vocalist. I'm sure the guitarist is, you know, wicked talented, and I'm sure the drummer is good. Absolutely. If they actually did their own thing. Yeah, but they don't know how, and that's kind of where we're getting to. It's like I said, it becomes affectation. It's a costume you can put on. It's like. It's just so it's easier to do it that way. It's like, okay, this is the established thing. I'll do that, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, I, I get every once in a while these videos pop up on on Facebook of these two girls. I don't know where they're from. They're like Asian. They look Asian. And they're doing Ramon songs. Oh, I know who you're talking about, yeah. And it's like, you can tell, though. It's like, and I look at it and I go, I wonder what these kids really like to listen to. <laughs> you know, I mean, they've got it down. They're playing it. The girl, one girl's just killing it on guitar i mean you know it's just john ramon but but still you can't be a lightweight it's still a technique and and you know she's got all his moves down and all that stuff you know and but it's all johnny she's not her she's johnny ramon you know and it's kind of like yeah but what if you took all that and then put your spin on it you know who are you you know what are you going to do with this Mm mm-hmm are you ever going to do anything with this? Can you do anything with this? It's like these you see these videos of these kids are like, you know, this is my nine-year-old and he's playing Eruption, note for note perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's yeah, okay. You're nine years old and you can do that. Now, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I, you, can I, do, I, you can do that, but can you do you? And you know what? Have you ever, you know, have you even tried? And a lot of those kids just have no direction as far as like where to take that and, you know, make something cool out of it other than, you know, just it being a trick. And and I remember you in a, of course, in a more uncle way, not as crass, you kind of doing that with me because I was whipping out Ramones and Misfits riffs left and right. And you're like, well, cool. I'm glad you know I did that. Have you written any songs yet? And I was just kind of like, well, not really. I don't know how. And you're just like, well. You're playing these songs. Take those ideas, make them yours. Yeah. And it just started with me changing a, a note or two in a Misfit song or a Ramon song. And, but and it's the like earliest that. The stuff you write is going to reflect that. You're going to still end up writing a song that sounds like what you, you know, yeah. my earliest stuff sounded probably like Anti Scene songs and Gigi Allen songs. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, that's what I was influenced by. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, you know. Which is ironic because now I've, I, you know, I feel like I can't write a decent anti scene song. You know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm having such members. a hard time with this. I'm like, you know, but, you know, and Jeff, though, is the one going, hey, don't worry about that. You know, write what you write and we'll make it us. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to, you got to, you know, back to that in a second. You got to almost... think, like, stop thinking about what it should be and just do what you do. And when we come together, it will become what it should be. Yeah. Well, what are y'all's favorite live albums? Hmm, that's a good little that's a good little wrap around there, Cap. <laughs> um, you know, oddly enough, there's not a whole lot of live records I can immediately like put my finger to. I, of course, you know, a live one and two. I won't count Evil Live. That's just diarrhea um, pl- uh, pressed to fucking vinyl. As much as I love <laughs> the Misfits, that's an unlistenable fucking record. Um, I. You might have to come back to me. I can't think okay. of a whole lot of live records off the top of my head, honestly. You know, it's ironic. I'm just sitting here. You said that about the Misfits. You know, that's the last live show I went to go see. Oh, the uh, the um, reunion. The, yeah, one of the ori- original Misfit reunions. I saw now, one now, of those now as a cat, because I've heard you rag on Misfits before, and then I've also heard you kind of go, "Well, I mean, I, they're I like fine. The Misfits. They're fine. So, yeah. So, with that in mind, how was that show? It was fun. 
It was fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was it was silly, but it was fun. Was it weird that it was in an arena? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Because I was going to say, Cap got to see one of those, too, but you got basically one of the balcony seats. Yeah, I got fucking nosebleeds. Well, so did I. I did it on purpose. We went up to Philadelphia, and uh, my, my friend Cito got uh, deals on airfare. So we got, I think the round-trip airfare was like 100 bucks. And then the ticket I got was twenty bucks or twenty two bucks or something. Oh wow! <laughs> Holy yeah. shit! And I was in the very front row of the second level, right in the center, and looking straight down onto the stage. Yeah. And, and I just sat there with my feet up on the rail, and just that way I, I was like, hey, I'm glad I'm not down there. Just kind of chilled out, <laughs> and, you know. And I just took it in and enjoyed it. I mean, you know, I'm 112. So <laughs> well, who was on that bill? Was that the? Uh, so I got to go do that whole thing for like a fly to Philly and spend the day in Philly and do the whole thing. I did it for oh, 120 bucks. It feels the Philly. One, I think that had like what suicidal tendencies. Well, they they did. I think they've done two Philly shows. The one I saw had uh, the middle band was Dropkick Murphys. Okay, that's right. Which I walked down on. I, yeah. I refused to participate. In any of that. There you go. There's another one of those convoluted, a, contrived bullshit. Fuck about Dropkick Murphys either. <laughs> And then Agnostic Front was the bottom. They opened. I'm yeah. sure that we saw was cool. them. And what was weird is we drove down to Columbia to see them like the week before. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was weird. It's like one week we see them in a club, you know, to 150 feet kids or whatever. And then, uh, you know, oh, 12 days later, they're in an arena. You know what? Uh, for my live record, I'm going to have to do a deep pull, uh, mainly because it's not on Spotify or anything. But when the Super Suckers released uh, Get It Together, they had a, a dual a CD DVD combo that had a live at one of the fucking. Um, it's like a House of Blues or something. Yeah, it's, like it's that. a House of Blues show, and that live show uh, they had the drummer at the time was the guy from um, Reverend Horton Heat. I hate that guy. He's an <laughs> asshole. I mean, I don't know him personally. I'm not talking about personally. I just hate the way he plays. I don't think he fits Super Suckers at all. You don't think so? Because I thought no, he crushed it on no. this lo- on this Maybe live show. You start bringing that double kick bullshit. Fuck that. No. <laughs> <laughs> that band, that band was was very much the sum of its parts, and once they once they started rotating him, it really hurt him bad. Yeah, I, and I can understand that, especially you know because he and Eagle very much had a different style playing all together. I still at least personally enjoyed the show, and that's actually one of my favorite live ones because Ron was on fire. And that and that that was actually one of the few deaths last year that actually kind of affected me harder because I had always preferred Ron's playing, especially when I would see the live footage. He always had the kind of solos that felt more soulful and kind of well, more. He was full more of a of, rock and roll player. The guy they got now is a heavy metal guy. Yeah, We're, you know that's the problem. Is that. I think this is a problem with a lot of these bands. The Super Suckers are guilty of it now that they got the guy. You got these kids that grew up playing the heavy metal stuff, mm-hmm. and they don't know how to play the rock and roll stuff. And there is a big difference. And a lot of people are like, "What's the difference?" And it's a huge difference. I, you I, know, a metalized kind of sensibility will always hurt your ability to just pull back and just play a sloppy, mm-hmm. you know, a revved up Chuck Berry type solo. Yeah. When I started to play, I would be conscious of that. I would be like, I don't want to learn Dave Mustaine solos or anything like that. I would mm-hmm. get, be more moved by, you know, a BB King guitar solo. Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, I it's just that's just my take on it. You know, everyone else's mileage might vary, but I think that hurts. I think that's part of what hurts. You know, like you said, why the demise in rock and roll? It's because no one really knows how to do it anymore. Yeah, they know how to present and pose and act and like i said it's affectation they can do it but they can't do it 
Yeah. Now, the only, I 100% agree on that one. The only one I will defend a little bit is uh, Marty. He does have the fucking name Metal Marty. I will say, though, over the last I'd, mm, two, three years, he's really kind of morphed himself into a better guitarist that kind of fits the Super Suckers more. Because the Super Suckers have actually wound up being one of the few bands I've seen live most. Like, we wound up going all the way up to Philly just to catch them one time. Oh, it was and, Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah, Pittsburgh. Sorry. And, um, yeah, I feel like he's kind of gotten himself into a little bit more of that looser kind of, almost kind of... um. <sighs> He's had to take on the role of both rhythm and lead too, so he's found his nice little like middle of like yeah. you know playing open Johnny Ramone style classic super suckers bar chords, but you know will go off. And he's a country player too. Not only is he a metal player, but he's a country player too. So Ooh. he's just kind of all across uh, the spectrum. I, I don't know. I don't know enough to say. Yeah, yeah, a, there's no. another example. I went to go see Wayne Hancock one time, and the band he had backing up were these kids, and they were trying to do. Hank Williams well, style. Well, they were trying to do country stuff, but it was like they they would do, it was like instead of doing country riffs, he's playing metal riffs over, you know, like and yeah, the, that, the, that, the stand up so bass guys work. up there trying to play like, you know, and at one point it just turned into just like, and Wayne Hancock just walked off stage. Really? Yeah, he just walked off and went out. Was this the Snug Harbor show that you told me about? He walked out into the patio and fucking smoked a cigarette and just sat there and let him jerk off, you know, it was just like, I was just like, dude, I don't even know why you got those kids with you, but whatever. Well, yeah. another example I can think of where, you know, maybe Young Bucks or different members try changing the sound a little bit. Uh, now my almost picked as my favorite live one, but there's just too many moments where the drummer kind of goes off the rail some is the Alice Cooper live at Montreux. Eric Singer adds in some of those double kicks like under my wheels and stuff like that. Eric Singer should not be playing for Alice Cooper. Now I like Eyes and be Dirty Diamonds. Anybody. But but that's the thing that fucks <laughs> me up is like I love Dirty Diamonds and he plays drums on that. Yeah, it's I a, think that's, that's a great record. I you know I, have you heard the new one? Oh, uh, Detroit Stories. That's yeah. fifty fifty. It's okay. I don't. I just I don't know. I like that. I, I like that it's a heritage record, but that's kind of like to it, me it too. does feel forced. It's, it's, well, I mean, you know, it's just given all the people that are involved in it. He's got Mark Farnor on it. He's got Wayne Kramer on it. You know, he's got the original Alice Cooper guys on it. I, but it's like, is it just one of those cases where cases where it's like it is a bunch of old men on a record? Well, kind of. Yeah, it's like kind of a kind of meh. I, maybe it'd grow on me if I listened to it a few more times, but I didn't think it was all that really all that good. I will say his version of um, Mama Won't Like Me that he released on Breadcrumbs last year. That was a really good I version. I heard that. Yeah, it was the cover of the Susie song. That, yeah. Yeah, that was really good. And um, I think it actually made the full record, but uh, he also did um, uh, Sister Anne. Yeah, I didn't think that was good. You didn't like that one? No. I thought that was great. No. It's not nearly as good as the MC5 version, but I kind of like you know, that he didn't do a spot-on MC5 version. No, of and, it, you know? and, and what's funny is they're not selling the idea that their version of, they're doing the Velvet's Rock and Roll, but the version they're doing is the arrangement from Mitch Ryder's Detroit. Okay. So a lot of people don't, you know, most, I doubt anyone even really knows that exists. Uh, Mitch Ryder's Detroit did it, and that's the version that they're doing with that riff. And then that's the version the Runaways covered. Okay. So the Runaways were doing the Mitch Ryder version of the Velvet song. Now 
Alice is doing the Mitch Ryder version of the Velvet song. And, and I'm like, this, the band was called fucking Detroit. Your song was called Detroit Stories. You could probably introduce that kind of thing into it. And Steve Hunter, who's playing on it, was the guy that probably did the arrangement. Mm-hmm. He did it on the original. I don't know. I'm, 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 I don't know. <laughs> but see here's the thing I, I, I 100% follow all of that because I go through those same sort of things and that's what creates the music fan is you're sitting here going, well there's, there, that exact riff comes yeah, from I'm this sit, version I, I'm mm-hmm. sitting there going and I just went full nerd and I love it and I that's love it and that's what this <laughs> podcast is for the Detroit version most people don't even know but I am the record and that's what they're doing wasn't it the Detroit wheel with Mitch nope, Ryder? Nope, it's Mitch Ryder's. It was really just Detroit. Just Detroit? Okay. And some people do call it Mitch Ryder's Detroit, I think, just to differentiate that it's Mitch Ryder. And uh, it's a pretty good record. It's not super great, but there's some cool stuff on it. Somewhere there's a version of them doing, I think it's Gimme Shelter, and it's oh, fucking wow. badass. And I thought it was on that record, but I don't think it is. But um, I wish I could find it. I heard it somewhere. It's really, really good. Uh the Grand Funk Railroad did a version of Gimme Shelter is really fucking cool. So that's another one where like uh, everybody will will say, hey, Grand Funk Railroad's more than their uh, their hits. If you check out the albums, they're pretty fucking good. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. Grand Funk's fucking killer. What's your uh, favorite live album? Man, I can't narrow it down to one. Uh, top five. I got, you know, <laughs> Live at Leeds, which was set up to look like a bootleg, which yeah. you know, that ties all this together. Cool. The, the Who one. Yeah. yeah. But the original Live at Leeds to me is still, pr- you know, they did a expanded Live at Leeds. That's, it's good too. It's just a lot with had, had the entire, uh, Tommy. Yeah. They did all, it's live the whole, on the it. whole show. Um, but Live at Leeds is amazing. Such a great record. Kiss Alive, of course, is always going to be. That might be if I had to choose one, I'd probably choose that. Yeah, this is what the Who. Uh, yeah. Oh wow, it almost feels like a r- Kiss is trying to do exactly. a rip of that on the new one. <laughs> Holy I shit! Mean, that was that's a lot of live records or bootlegs look kind of like that back in the day. So yeah, that was like not you know it's not that Kiss is ripping off of that. Well, it's I just know they're, they're ripping. They're doing the bootleg thing. I just have to talk shit. It was the first I thing I saw. <laughs> so, so you know, Double Live Gonzo is a great live record. You know, Indeed. and I I don't I'm not even that big of a Ted fan, but that record is just boss you know um let's see you know obviously that ramones live record's good but you know now there's like 20 of them they all sound the same they're all you know i know the ramones live stuff gets tough to listen to after a while because it all just sounds the same well i mean you know because that but that's a testimony to how tight they were and how what how you know drilled into their thing they were um there wasn't a lot of variants like you know what i think made bootlegs appealing to people was sometimes it would be a variance a set difference mm-hmm. and they might swap out songs or whatever christopher Mose didn't do that it was just dominoes <laughs> <laughs> so you know but that's still a great live record um that cheap trick live record that's on my list too. you know Budokan. which mm-hmm. you know that wasn't even supposed to be released in america um you know the both the the Lou Reed almost any Lou Reed live record but you know a lot of people don't are divided about the Rock and Roll Animal record and that was the album that he did with what became the Alice Cooper yeah. group okay. with I love Steve that Hunter one. and Dick Wagner and Prakash John oh wow okay yeah. so just imagine Lou Reed songs with just full on 70s guitar porn it's, on them yeah it's yeah, alright yeah it's Lou, really Lou Reed good. again is the one that's just like that seems like a daunting task to ever really dive yeah, into I can so see. I've not I can really see done it, it. Is. I can get it you know but love- you know and then you listen to that Take No Prisoners where it's more it's a complete opposite thing where he's doing um 
he's gotten into his kind of more R&B kind of street New York thing going and he's got the you know he's but he's almost just doing like free association on some of the songs it's kind of famous for that he goes yeah. opening right right up with Sweet Jane and he's barely does the, they're doing the song and he's just got him holding the riff and he's just like he's kind of vamping vamping <laughs> and he's just talking shit on people and stuff <laughs> And the same with like Walk on the Wild Side on there. He does Walk on the Wild Side, but then he never does the song. Instead, he starts telling the story of how he came to do the song <laughs> and just starts vamping off of that. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's some, it's, and it's, some of it's fucking funny as shit, you know. But not, most of the album is still pretty straightforward. Yeah. You know? But it, and it's, and it's, like I said, it's got a real, what do they call the, those micros that he, he was, he really liked to play with in the late 70s? Or, I think it's binaural. Um, is that the word? I'm not sure he's going it, to it, pull, the deal pull is, shit up. Cap. It, it, was, it was that. supposed to give you the feel that you know when you listen to it, it's particular on headphones that it's it has a natural sound uh, like you're in the room. Okay, I know what you're talking about, right? So you know that live album sounds interesting because of that. Um, basically, a lameness turns a 360 mic. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was an early version of I guess of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying when I look up binaural microphone, I got you know look like dummy heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that was kind of the deal that they did. Yeah, mm-hmm. because uh, that with, that's, that's, right. that's the current technology that people use to do. You know those ASMR videos and shit like that. I don't know. That that's like when you get the super good microphone and it's able oh. to split and just oh like those old tricks where it's like put headphones in. It sounds like someone's cutting your hair. That kind of shit. Oh, that's yeah, what yeah. ASMR is, and it's that similar kind of technology. I think uh, oh shit, I'm blanking on the guy's name. That uh, I was thinking uh, didn't suicide have microphones like these when they were playing out live maybe i don't know that's one that was kind of like lou Reed, where that was like a a chore at first but once you get it you get it once you get it you get it yeah i think on my list of live records definitely budokan definitely live at leeds i'll put humble pie rocking the Fillmore. yeah on that list i I was talking about that with somebody not long ago and i gotta go back and listen to that again because it's never really connected with me I don't know why. Humble Pie as a whole has never really connected with me. I'm just a it seemed like to me it would be right up in my wheelhouse, but kind um, of falls, falls in that trap of, you know, going too long because it's seventies guitar rock. Well, I like it, but I just I guess I'm just not overtly familiar with it, so it doesn't kinda of grab me. Like you said, it kinda of maybe jams too much. Yeah, know? but it's like, like long winded jams on stuff that it's like I don't know the song well enough. But Yeah, I Steve don't know. Marriott voice though and Oh yeah. Peter Frampton on guitar. Yeah, young young Peter Frampton. Mm-hmm. I'll put them on there. Uh, we to will think not of, add Frampton Comes Alive. No, not at all. <laughs> not Why the same not? thing. Not the same A thing. better Frampton Live album is that Humble Pie mm, record. Yeah. The better, yeah, the better Peter Frampton Live is the Humble Pie. <laughs> I'm, trying to, yeah, I'm trying to not include Kiss on my list because obviously a lot one yeah. is, but uh, Deep Purple Made in Japan's on that oh, list. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's all right. Um, I think Trails Off on Space Trucking, but... Uh, I'm more of a... You know what? I'm, I'm more of a fan of the mark ii lineup with david coverdale and glenn i am hughes. too i think i love that burn album yeah, yeah burns great glenn think, hughes is such and david coverdale you have two fucking monster singers on that album but i you know i think a live album i mean there's there's they're good to have it sometimes as a live document mm-hmm. yeah, that's fine but they don't necessarily capture an excitement or an intensity or an energy you know i'm thinking of like Black Flags live records, and I love those records, but they don't really capture a vibe to me that I think a live record should. Yeah, and you know, I think that's why a lot of these live records get doctored is to try to amp up that kind of feeling that you would get, and you know, 
Well, I have a feeling that uh, life from quarantine is going to be all warts, no overdubs. It's going to be, yeah, it's just straight from whatever. <laughs> I don't, I didn't have any hand in how that mix. I know, I, you know, I, I we've done two of those. With the uh, quarantine shows? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, one so, was Halloween. One was the Halloween one. And, uh, you know, so uh, I, I've totally lost in my memory now of what the first one was. I mean, I, I remember a little of it, but I, I, you know, because the Halloween one's the last one that's more prevalent in my memory. Yeah. That one also felt like that was the more produced one, like with the uh, cameras and stuff. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, you know, um, we had more camera people for mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So. Is uh, Screaming Bloody Live the one uh, that was the three, uh, th- the three CD live package? No, that was the one live son of a bitch. One which, live son which, of a bitch. That's what it was. I think that's a compilation of a lot of different live things. There's a whole show, and then there's some uh, assorted other stuff on that's it. That's a, a great then, live package, and then it too. And the DVD, I think, with it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, because uh, back when uh, Cap and I were just starting to hang out and everything, that was the CD he had. He had that big, yeah. thick original collection. That, that was a really well-recorded live show, too. It really was. I remember I remember listening to that. There was a period where we had a falling out and weren't really talking or whatever, and I got a copy of that, and I was listening to to it it was in a guy's car where I, I was working at this warehouse and he had a cool car stereo kind of thing i was like listen to this you know and i was just thinking god this fucking sounds huge yeah <laughs> i was just thinking that's so good it's done really well it was, it was really well recorded well no i'm actually really looking forward to the uh, live in quarantine thing because one of the things that you know to kind of bring it back to you know full full circle back to the very beginning of the show uh when you're kind of saying you know maybe it's hard for you to kind of figure out ways you, know, you feel like you can't write a good any scene song now even though any scene and Gigi were like the big influences yeah. early on writing and stuff like that i can honestly say you have added a new flavor to the band that has made me excited for it and even your songwriting it is different than what joe or anything would have been before but it just sounds like a new era and i think even with what you're saying earlier with jeff at the helm orchestrating it and doing like that it's always going to have that any scene bite but the thing that i enjoy especially growing up listening to you know jeff yelling in my ear ever since i was a baby is like on the um last record why you gotta be stuff like that Mm. i enjoy the fact that you guys are kind of reaching out a little bit and kind of trying different things yeah and trying just little new things that expand the anti-scene sound a little bit yeah we've got a song we're working on right now and i I think jeff williams actually wrote the lyrics to this and um i think once the whole thing gets put together the way we're trying to it's Mm going to be it's gonna be a lot different than what i think any anything they well not anything they've done before but it's going to be definitely kind of pushing the envelope a little bit so i'm excited for that i think that's going to turn into something really strong especially um, barry on drums again and... yeah it's just um you know we've we've like i said we've got about maybe six songs written now uh there's one i want to go back and and touch on like i said because now we got the demos and you can listen to it and stuff like i I listen to like we're number one and i'm thinking oh we should have pulled the tempo down on that you know on on a couple of those things or experimented with it before we did it it never ends but but you just you know but you're capturing at the same time you know you're capturing that moment in time and there's something to be said for that too um you know but 
going back to the Mad Brother Ward records, you know, uh, that especially that second one, there's just so much I wish we had done different on that. But, you know, people love it for what it is. There's people that love that Plasmatics cover, which I think is complete dog shit. But <laughs> there's people that are like, man, that was so great. And I'm like, so you think so? You all think right, so? Then? Well, I mean, it comes all the way around. And, you know, a couple of your songs now are, you know, live anti-scene songs. And, you y'all, and y'all have even gone in and re-recorded some of, uh, like, one or two of your old Mad Brother Ward songs. Well, even. there was some unused stuff that I had, this, the riffs that we've done. Mm-hmm. And, and those become, I brought them in. Used well, them. Need It Bad was uh, covered by any scene. No. And, Need It Bad was done on the Mongrels record. What, uh, what, co- what kill was the, the scene? Kill yeah, the scene. scene okay, yeah. I didn't know they were going to do that. They surprised me with that. Yeah. And um, the first time they did it, they actually played it live. And we were, I was selling t shirts one night and I had no idea they were going to do it. And um, they come, you know, they do the encore, they come up and, and Jeff's going, Now we got a song we want to do that was written by somebody that's here tonight and we're going to have him get up and do it with it. And I'm looking around going, I wonder what, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> you know? They did tell me about this. <laughs> I, well, I didn't know what they were talking about. And he, and he goes, And it's Mad Brother Ward. And I was like, God what? Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I remember Jeff Young going, go on, you know, you know. And I was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and I didn't know I didn't know what they were gonna play. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And yeah. I'm like I'm like sitting there going, What the hell? And just like, you know, all right, this song's yours. It's called Kill the Scene. And I was like, Whoa, yeah. <laughs> Let me pull into my Rolodex real quick. <laughs> and hearing Joe Young play that, you know, that was a cool moment. You know, that was a cool thing to have happen. So I bet that I, would be surreal. I had, it was completely surreal. And I was like, and then they recorded it. Or I guess they had already recorded it at that point, but I didn't know it. Yeah. So, and Jeff changed all the words, which was fine with me. Uh, so really, I mean, it was Tom Nally that wrote that it's mm-hmm. his his song i mean he wrote the music i i wrote the words and um so yeah i brought there's a I, the song obstinate there's the song i piss you off that's an old Mad brother word song yeah, okay that I was never, the other one i was trying to think I never, of i never did it i had a four track recording of that i have the demo of it that's yeah. why i considered it a uh, legit song <laughs> uh, and i had a song i was writing called i hate everything and it, it and I, I had written it kind of two different ways. The the demo of it is just it was it's a thirty second song. I hate it all. Yeah, I hate everything. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and that became static. Oh, I never connected those dots. I'm gonna have to go re listen. Well, static has the other part of the song. When I wrote it the long way, uh huh. Because I had lyrics for I hate everything, and then I just shortened it down right. to that. Because so I, I was going to say Static is actually one of my favorites on I, that record. I think it's pretty much everybody's favorite on that record. I mean, everybody I've ever talked to says Static's their favorite song on that record. Um, Honestly, like kind of pulling on immediate memory, Static, and um, uh, the one I did the video for you guys for uh, off number one. Lo-Fi? Lo-Fi. I think those are my two favorites that you guys have spit out as like the new lineup and the new era. Lo-Fi was cool because we wrote that just almost on the spot. I was... I I was um, I can't remember what I was doing. I was just fucking around on the guitar one day, and I was just playing the riff, ba 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 da 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 ba ba da, without even thinking. I was just mm-hmm. it was just a mindless thing. And Jeff walks in, and he's like, "What is that?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I'm just fucking around." And he's like, "Let's work that That's up." That's cool. And, yeah. and then the next thing you know, you know that that's always exciting to do. Oh, yeah, I just love like, those you know, moments. 
you know. Just right then and there, and then the song's done within like yeah. 15 minutes. <laughs> By and large, I mean, it took a little more to do it, but I mean, you know, and the, I, that middle part, I don't know how the hell I came up with that. He goes, we need to do something like in the middle. And I was like, well, maybe if we did this, and I, it was mm. there it was, it was just like weird. Um, but, but it works so well. It, it, it did work. And we go to an open E, which they'd never done before. Mm-hmm. Because you know, honestly, because being the music fan and the nerd and everything, there's a lot of any scene songs that start in B. Yeah, well, a lot of songs start almost on B. all of them do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we we've been trying to kind of like vary that a little bit, but sometimes you gotta go there. I was gonna say it's kind of like how every Motorhead song starts with E flat, yeah. you know, or E whatever tuning they're in. <laughs> but, you know, whatever it just it it works. So yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. No, and, and I'm I'm just honestly excited because of the, the output and for everything else because I remember seeing that live show and just remembering how good the audio was and and I am a fan of a re-record because I still had the mentality of the original still there. I can go listen to the fucking original of what of just anything. Oh, so the live in quarantine is going to be the closest thing I have to like y'all's version of classic songs and yeah. your, and your take on it. And I think that's honestly why I'm excited for it because I do genuinely enjoy y'all's lineup and y'all's current versions and takes of the classic songs. I, uh, I think, I think that one thing I've talked about this with Malcolm, one thing that made this work so well, because you know, when we did this, we, we were in a rut, you know, mm-hmm. when Gooch left, he just was like, Gone. gone and we had we had literally two weeks to pull it together because we were going to go on the road for 10 days with the i hate god thing you can't cancel that and we didn't <laughs> want to cancel it and 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 it and that could have been a and by rights should have been a disaster but malcolm came in and we practiced twice literally twice mm-hmm. and played the first show I mean, and, and Malcolm's just that good. <laughs> well, what helped is that just by a weird, I mean, this is like winning the lottery is like me and Malcolm's pick attack and everything are very similar. So we, we just naturally locked into each other, Yeah, which I, you know, I think we locked in better than me and Barry ever did. And, uh, you know, I think that made it that much stronger. I think, you right. know, just had it been anyone else in, you know, any variation it might not have worked i mean it also helped that barry could play the drums you know and already had played drums so that well, there's nothing barry can't play right yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's you know he's just the, a beast he's the goddamn professional yeah <laughs> that's right that's what he, he has earned the t-shirt <laughs> so so you know it just we were it, it's just um we're lucky to have you know the strengths where they lay mm-hmm. so um it's a full band of goddamn professionals, is what it it's, is. It's been a very, it's been very, very different playing with Barry than it was with Gooch. And there's a lot of things Gooch could do that Barry either can't or won't. Barry's got, a very, you know, he's he's developed his style. He's comfortable in that style, mm-hmm. and it's very different than what Gooch had done. And, then, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. Yeah. It's just that when I joined, I was used to that. And now it's like this transition. It's, to this yeah, other it's, a, it's a personal a transition. So, but learning to play in, in, in many ways, it's easier to play with Barry because he's, his, his style is so much straightforward. You know, yeah. he's, he's very influenced by like uh, Paul cook of the sex pistols and Phil Rudd of ACDC. It's that, you know, very, and so there's stuff that um, you find that it's a lot easier. Like, I think, I don't think we ever played fuck all y'all really good with, 
Gooch. Yeah. And, and because he just wouldn't punch the accents like they should be. And I understood what he was doing. He was trying to do something different. I mean, he wasn't trying to fuck up the song. No, right not at all. And there was a lot of occasions, though, where he would do stuff. And he'd be fluid in places where he didn't need to be fluid. And, and, and as a musician, I know exactly what yeah. you're talking about. And you need that... Mm-hmm. kind of thing and, and also just me as an anti scene fan i'm really enjoying this lineup because again i feel that lot connection between uh you and malcolm and also my anti scene growing up was doug on bass and barry right, on right. drums so it's like i'm mm-hmm. kind of getting a taste of that thump and feel that i had growing up seeing anti scene live yeah. so really i'm just gr- like ooh, i'm kind of getting my old vibes back and that's also fun for and me all those cds I, a lot of the cds that i have had barry play drums on them yeah, yeah that's, that's true that's it's so it's you know i think i think people prefer him in that they you know as far as our fan base or whatever i think they like that you know mm-hmm. and i think a big swath of our fan base or whatever it's timeline you know they came in with that right him as as part of that because because so. uh, groove and brutalsville were kind of like one two punches in yeah. that uh, in that regard yeah, particular. I mean, you know, probably the three most widely known records are the Southern Hostility, Eat More Possum, and Here to Run Your Groove. Mm-hmm. Here, Here to Run Your Groove is probably the most popular record they've got. Yeah, and that's you know, so a lot of what we do is is built around you know, as far as live, we try to you know make sure that's stitched in there pretty you know well represented or whatever. Yeah. But. Uh, you know, Jeff is, always likes to do a lot of the new stuff, and I do too. I mean, you know, I'm obviously going to always favor the stuff that I've written. Oh, of course you will. But I also favor, you know, the stuff from my timeline era, which, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes Jeff will, you know, you know, we wrote more songs than between 1990, <laughs> 1991 and 93, right? And I'm like, I know. But, right, you know, but. I never got, you know, I just want to play those. Yeah. You know, those were, but that was my timeline. That was my era, you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. Everybody has, you know, it's a timeline thing. And um, I was going to say one of them that uh, I remember you guys pulling out shortly after you joined that I was just like, oh, shit, yes, was um, fuck. I had it in my head right before <laughs> I said it. <laughs> it's it's uh, the last song on Southern Hostility, um, Self-Destruction. Oh, yeah, Self-Destruction. I always wanted to play that. Uh, well, I made them play it in the Mongrels, and then we played it. You know, sometimes with Anna scene. Mm-hmm. Did we do that on the? I think we did that on the quarantine record. I'm pretty we? sure you didn't. I can't remember. See, I can't remember the. I know, you, I know you did on the last anniversary show. Did we? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that because remember that being a high point. I'm just like, yes, they included this one because yeah, to me it has the cool moment of like the intro of trapped in dixie like it's kind of got that you know same kind of thumpy bass with the drum intro but just as soon as that guitar comes in with just that riff that bam boom 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 then the drums fully kick in to me that that i'm not one of those people that like getting in the pit i'm one of those people that enjoy watching the show I hear that riff, and I want to just immediately punch the next person beside me. It's Don't just, be around me. <laughs> that's like one of those just songs that just pull out that primal aggression of just, yes! I remember the first time I ever heard that song. Mm-hmm. I remember where I was. I remember what was going on. And it was because they were playing it live. Yeah. I saw them play it at the old 1313. They opened the show with it. And it just it was just like... 
<laughs> and what was cool about that, and I think about this sometimes, like a lot of those songs back then, they were already playing live sometimes for a year or more before they recorded it. Mm-hmm. So you knew the song from having to go see them. And that was how it, you know, it, it, it the songs were that good that they stayed in your head, even though you'd only heard them live a couple of times. And it made you excited about the upcoming and, release. Yeah, and maybe, yeah. So actually, you know, Jeff dropped that recently. He's like, you know, we might do another live, you know, thing because... We have no choice yeah and he's talking about let's do some of these new songs live and i'm like yeah let's do it yeah you know i mean yeah no one's gonna know it but you know get to know it exactly yeah. <laughs> and it's quality it's music and, so, and, and that's the thing and that's I, I love the fact you guys have continued to stay prolific and the people at the helm whether that be you barry clayton whomever it's it's always going to pass the filters of quality because yeah. you guys still care and give a shit. No, I, and I think that's also hard to find with a lot of bands today that I honestly give a shit about their songs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just put something out there just to have it and then be like, you know, here's our new album. You know, I, I'm going to, I want to stand behind it and be proud of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to be embarrassed by anything I put out. So, yeah. and, whenever, and one other thing I want to touch on, cause we've also, it's, it's very easy for us to get lost track of time on this. But one other thing I do want to mention um, that I don't think we really touched on, on the last episode is uh, your writing. Uh, you've been doing a whole lot of writing um, for the blog, especially when you were doing the tours with Annie Scene, and it's always such an enjoyable read. And that's something I remember even back in the MySpace days you enjoyed doing was just writing little blogs. What what about you has always kind of enjoyed doing some sort of summary or a recount of a memory? I don't know. I don't. I don't really know what motivates that. I I've always enjoyed writing ever since I was a kid mm-hmm. so and you know writing when you're just writing stuff like that and not, and not like songwriting um there's um you know you, you you start becoming a little more cognizant about okay it's got to read interesting it's got to be interesting to read it mm-hmm. can't just be boring you know so sometimes you got to throw in stuff to make it a little more interesting to read yeah. you can't you know because a boring reads boring it can be just factual information we went here we did this you know, <laughs> got a little salt and pepper to or the whatever stew. yeah you know put something into throw it throwing some five dollar words here and there yeah. <laughs> paint well, a picture if you will yeah well, maybe three dollar words <laughs> <laughs> three dollar words and a five dollar foot long anyway well, it, it, uh, <laughs> that's so a country song <laughs> you know I, I get inspired to write stuff and some of it's like nerdy i wrote a really long facebook post this week when jim crockett died but I wanted to say something about it, and I didn't make my point good at all because I was writing kind of stream of consciousness, and I was trying to tie it all together, and I realized, oh, this is getting long. No one's going to read this. <laughs> I do that a lot and then just delete it. Yeah, I just, I'll do that. But I, I wanted to write it, and I was like, you know. That's more cathartic than anything. Yeah, though, well, that's it? what it was. And I'm like, I don't care if anyone reads it or not. You know, it's not, it's not what I'm writing it for. So, and that's how I feel about even the blog. It's like, I'll write the blog. And sometimes, yeah, you look at the, the read counts, and you kind of go, uh, you know, I put a lot of work into that. Yeah. But then there's times where it's just kind of like, sometimes I don't put a lot of work into them. They're, they, you know, for some reason they'll they'll pop and there'll be a bunch of people, you know, the read counts will be high or whatever. Yeah. But um, either way, it's like really my primary motivation for that is so when I get to be 80, I'll have some memory of, I can look back and read this and have a, you know, some sort of detailed memory of what I've done. I wish I had done it more when I was younger doing 
even though we didn't play as often or whatever, but you know, the Mad Brother Ward shows. Yeah. I wrote one blog where I referenced uh, that tour we did in 93. Mm-hmm. We were talking before I, when we came on, we talked about the Chinese restaurant thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I talked about a show they did at this place called the Florida Theater that was real memorable to me because they came out after their set and did an encore that was 30 minutes long of unrehearsed stuff. Oh, wow. That's the only time I can remember ever having seen them do that. Holy shit. But they were at a point where they had rehearsed a lot of different stuff, I think. But they right. were they were playing stuff they hadn't played and had not rehearsed in forever. I remember they played Jailbait then. I was like, I think it was the first time I ever saw them play it live. Huh. Oh, wow. You know. I'll be right back. I excuse that. Oh, you're good. So, <laughs> um, Anyway. Well, no, I, I love kind of digging into that sort of stuff and, and just kind of seeing the progression of, you know, hell, I I remember um, just hanging out with you and you'd just be, you know, strumming on acoustic guitar and just always being really, I, I wouldn't say captivated or intrigued, but always drawn in by your chord progressions and your songwriting. Like, it never just felt, like, dull to me. Like, it was it was riffs that would get stuck in my head. Well, that's weird, because I don't feel like, you know, I feel like sometimes, as far as stuff like that, when you talk about when I'm playing on an acoustic, yeah. you know, I only know, like, four chords. Well, I mean... And so it's just arranging those same four chords, and I don't think my transitions are all that good. But, you know, I just do it for me, and it's fun. Um the approach to that becomes a whole different thing the the idea behind anything like you do like that it's just a complete different attitude it's like Mm -hmm. an attitudinal shift you know i can write about a whole you know it's like a whole different dynamic but no one's ever going to hear that stuff because you know i'm never intended to do anything with it yeah well no and well at least it it helped in uh an early 14 15 16 year old alex because exactly with the same reasons you were saying you were like in jazz you know it's the emotion and it's the feeling that they're putting behind it well you may know only four chords but you would strum it in such a way and your transitions were in such a way that it conveyed whatever emotion you're wanting to give at the time and even if you were just kind of humming along you didn't have lyrics it would always still resonate and yeah. it still felt like quality music. I appreciate it. And, and, I, and I'm glad you're still kind of bringing that in with Annie Sane. And I'm very glad that you even kind of took the time to come in here because exactly for the same reason you write your blogs, it's the same reason why we enjoy doing this show, you know? Oh, yeah. I think it's cool that y'all do it. And, um, you know, I was, you asked me to do this the other week and I was like, ah, you know, I, I think I said this last time I was here. I say it anytime I talk to anybody, I don't. I don't feel like I talk as well as I write. I don't think I'm as good of a conversationalist as I am a writer. You if, know? If that because the, I can that, write by myself, and I know I can get to a point, and I can revise and re-edit. You know, but when you're just talking, it's just like blah, 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 blah. I beg to disagree. If if you were hard to talk to, we wouldn't have lost track of time of me look down at the recorder and see it at two hours and forty three minutes. Oh, Jesus. oh yeah, it's like when so you're comfortable, like, you can just go on about you know whatever you want to talk about when you're comfortable and you're in yeah. a group of you know like minded individuals like yeah, us. If, yeah, if you were a tough conversation, as soon as the one hour mark hit, I would have been finding ways for us. Yeah. To wrap up, so no, you're you've been awesome, and we're not quite finished here yet. We do first have, need to dig on into our Spotify playlists and figure out what the hell we've been listening to. What you listening to, son? I don't think you like it. Well, why not? I like this new generation of music. <laughs> Where did you record this? I bought it at the mall. What that person on your tape has is a medical disorder. 
All right, Cap, what the hell have you been listening to? Well, as mentioned earlier in this uh, episode, I've been listening to a lot of that uh, new live record from Cheap Trick, Out to Get You, Live 1977. And, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I talked about it at the beginning of the episode. And I should also mention that we talked Cheap Trick in length on our Patreon uh, or our show on our Patreon. You got to hear this. We feature uh, the first Cheap Trick record. That's right. And, uh, of course, if you haven't uh, checked out the new Cheap Trick record, and if you're a fan, definitely check it out. Just blistering live versions of basically those first two albums. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of, uh, and yeah, like I mentioned, a lot of uh, missed cues and, you know, rough vocal. Not it, rough it's to a where real, live, real record. live record. It's not rough to where like it takes away from it, where it's like, oh, that's awful, but it just adds character to it. Yeah, no, I totally feel you on that. So, yeah, that's it's been a real cheap trick kick here in this uh, last <laughs> week or so. <laughs> in my ears, yeah. Well, Russ, what the hell have you been listening to, sir? Oh, man, uh, you know, I... Um been listening to i've got in this little uh wormhole of listening to a band called nazareth oh, okay yeah nice and um <laughs> you know not, I don't, not, not I, what i would have immediately assumed from you but well I, you know i it wouldn't be something i immediately assumed for myself i mean i you know i knew the nazareth radio songs right and hair of the dog is a great fucking song it's a cool little riff and and stuff but you know i started listening like oh let's go into this you know and i i'd i'd listened to that whole hair of the dog record before and it never really grabbed me but i figured well this you know they're one of those bands whose record covers don't really match what they sound like yeah let me look those up and uh, like an ex you know they kind of like molly hatchet yeah, or something yeah, like they that did this, yeah that, that franzetta oh yeah but, I love this. Yeah, I love this. This could be like a fucking black metal album cover, but oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's hair of the dog, and then you had the uh, expect no mercy, which I think was the friends out of cover, and then was that playing the game? Mm-hmm. God, yeah. all of those just look like doom metal, black metal well, they, album no, covers. Well, playing the game, don't. But you know, they. I wrote about them on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, where I was talked about how you know. Dan McCafferty, their singer, looks exactly like he sounds. <laughs> and, he, and he looks like the guy that was like, you know, when you were in eighth grade and he should have been like graduated already, but mm. he's still in eighth grade and he's like, hey, fuck you, punk rock faggot. <laughs> like, what did I do? Yeah, that's what he looks like. I ain't saying that's what the guy's actually like, but that's what he looks like. He looks like one of those guys. <laughs> one of those know? aggros. He's just like that guy that's like, man, he's got a, he's, he's, what he's like he could he's kick in, your ass yeah. <laughs> is he even supposed to be in school <laughs> I mean, oh he's, yeah he looks, he's, he's 23 years old <laughs> oh yeah even in all these older photos he looks rough he's like got black teeth well if you had to recommend at least a song for someone to check out if they're just like what i mean yeah you know what i couldn't recommend a song i got into one of their like kind of more ballady songs they got this song called uh love hurts not no, that one no, no. <laughs> that's that's you know that's an old classic standard yeah that's Graham uh, parsons right they got this song called shot me down that i like a lot um I don't know. They're just just different things. They, mm-hmm. uh, the Expect No Mercy album is pretty good. Um, I've got real big into the. They got a record called Close Enough for Rock and Roll. I, I was kind of heavy into that for a minute. I'm kind of yeah. drifting from record to record. No, no. My problem is, I'll get into a certain band. Uh-huh. Tell me if y'all do this. I get into a band and it's like, it's all I'll listen to for a while. Hey, I will too. Like, well, I'll go through a catalog and like that era guy that's him from the 80s but you know. i was wondering about that yeah so i go through a thing and i'll get and i'll just like mine it out to where i'm just like and then it's just like 
I don't want to ever hear this again. Oh yeah, then I'll just like and then leave it alone just for a long time. For a while. But it's all I'll listen to for a minute. I even know? go a step further. I'll find a band that I like a new band that I like that I've discovered. To me, only one record exists. I'll play that one record right, right. forever. I'll try skimming the other ones, and I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not as good as this one. And then one day, I'll finally just be like, I'm so sick of this one. Fine, I guess I'll listen to the other ones. And then I'll listen with fresh ears, and I'm like, oh, this is actually better than the other one yeah, I was obsessed yeah, uh-huh, with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's kind of how it goes. I mean, you know, I, I and I've been going, like, mining out some of this old 70s rock and roll like you know 70s arena rock or whatever like mm-hmm. not arena rock i think arena rock i think of like sticks and reo speed wagon and okay. all that but i'm going like uh you know i get curious about like blue oyster cult and, and you know there's a curiosity how that ties into like patty smith yeah you know and and like you know they have they hold some sort of you know they they they're, they're a cult band. They have their own cult. You know, not no pun intended. Yeah, but they have their following. <laughs> and I was and I was always impressed by the fact that that's a band that was like you know playing the the arenas back in the day, and now they're playing clubs. But they've never stopped. They've never gone mm-hmm. away. They've never seemed like they're bitter about anything. They're always doing their thing, and they're just like, oh well, you know, they're lucky enough to have the job, <laughs> had the know? hits and the following to keep them going, still and making albums. That, man, and you know, and some of that that stuff is. Uh, is really, really, really fucking good. You know, I like uh, Secret, Secret Treaties. Secret Treaties, that's my favorite one. fucking album, you know. And then I see a guy like uh, uh, Marky from Zeke posting a bunch of, you know, Blue Oyster Cult stuff on Facebook, and I'm like, ah, someone else gets it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I follow him on Facebook, too. <laughs> Brother! <laughs> Zeke's yeah, a great how, fucking band, too. That's how it was when people with Danko Jones, and I'm like, hey, brother! <laughs> With us, it's like all like obscure to seventies fucking uh, yeah. stuff nobody's heard of. <laughs> and then for me, uh, another one that uh, when I start hearing it, I I got to thank Brad uh, up at the rim for turning me onto this band, uh, Bitch Queens. I've been Ooh. listening to uh, City of Class lately, and there's just a bunch of good stuff on this. Uh, another Swedish rock band, part of the Turbo Jugend, so they definitely have a Turbo Negro style and kind of attitude and sound to them, but just their own version of it. It doesn't found it does it, they didn't Greta Van Fleet it, <laughs> you yeah. know. It's like you can tell they're fans, but it's their own version. And title track City of Class is great. Superboy. Superboy is probably my favorite one on there. Negative Heaven, When Did I Die, all those. Fucking great record. And if you're you're just a Durban Negro fan and just kind of looking for something of a similar taste, I would definitely recommend that one. It's fun. I think my favorite song by them isn't on that album, but it's on their uh, the one that came out before where it goes like, gimme, gimme, gimme a uh, kiss, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. And th- that's, that's one of the things they d- definitely pull from the Turbo Negro style is the very catchy kind of poppy choruses with good riffages behind it, but it's still heavy. That kind of shit. So yeah. it's fun. And uh, we'll definitely throw a link to um, your blog, the blog spot in the episode description for people to check out, especially if they enjoy old road trip stories and van stories. And yeah, just there's some also off topic stuff. I go off mm-hmm. on tangents every once in a blue moon. And I'm sure the, uh, I think, I think if I was reading correctly, especially by the time this episode comes out, pre-orders for live and quarantine will be coming out here pretty soon different color multicolor vinyl there's like urinal cake pink (laughs) the yellow i don't know what that's called but i would assume piss yellow if we got urinal cake (laughs) (laughs) maybe it wasn't a piss yellow i don't think (laughs) who's putting out uh who's putting out this release tko i think sweet 
Yeah, so of course, all that good shit. And Russ, again, thank you so much for coming on in and chatting with us. And you're welcome in anytime. Even if you want to start up your own show, all you got to do is come in, sit down, talk, and then we'll do the rest. <laughs> welcome to boredom with Russ Ward. <laughs> oh, be like you and me just going off on uh, just obscure wrestling and wrestling. rock and roll shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, to me, I'd tune into that shit. I don't give a fuck. Well, Captain, you have a damn outro for us. Yes, R.I.P. Jim Crockett Jr. Yes, there yep. you go. another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash something good network